The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, do you like New Japan Pro Wrestling? Are you a Shinihon freak? If so, check out the Super Jcast with Joel and Damon on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And even if you fucking hate New Japan Pro Wrestling, listen to the Super Jcast anyway. Not just for our great show reviews, analysis, and pastrami sandwiches, mm-hmm. but there's also usually some dick jokes somewhere in the obligatory opening 30 minutes of absolute nonsense we chat about every single week. That's the Super Jcast for all the best talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling, crisps, and pornography. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Back to open the voice gate for February 20th, 2024. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network or on our own dedicated Open the Voice Gate podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our redcircle.com landing site. You click the red box that says sponsor this podcasting except a one time. A reoccurring donation, no obligation whatsoever, but we would like to thank all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Mike Spears, joining alongside, as always, Kay Slow. And we are doing a little bit of a special uh, version of the program this week. We will be talking a little bit about what happened for Dragon Gate in Kyoto uh, this last weekend, but we're going to be devoting the vast majority of this episode to rewind and rewatch where we go and find a particular time in dragon system history go back rewind and rewatch it as a part of the dragon gate 25 project at voices of wrestling.com i'm one of your hosts it's mike spears join alongside as always case low case how are you doing today oh my goodness i'm doing well i am excited for this episode not for the contemporary dragon gate we're talking about which was fine you know not anything yeah not, not anything harmful but certainly uh i took a look so that show was what sunday morning i took a look at the card last thursday and sent mike a dm i was like we we either need a second topic or we need to punch current dragon gate all together this week i can't give you 90 minutes on the kyoto show and uh, thank God we have we have something that I'm thrilled to talk about this week. So we'll get to that in just a second. But I'm I'm okay, Mike. How are you? 
You know, it's been a pretty busy 2024 for me, and it's something where I... Oh, in Texas, we're in this one period of time that you get all four seasons within about 10 days. That sounds good. That sounds like it's not concerning in the long term at all. No, no. I mean, it was below freezing on Sunday. Uh, Friday, we're probably going to top out at 85. And this is like the part of my brain case that you'll experience this uh, when you get a bit older. Where like as soon as like you start noticing these things, at least if you live in a not necessarily a hellscape, but if you live in Texas, basically, you, you, at this time of the year, I'm already thinking like, all right, I need to go see what my weather ceiling is like. I need to go get my AC guy out here because by probably Easter or thereabouts, I know that everything's going to be booked for like the remainder of this because you're not going to get an AC guy really to solve a problem in July that you really should have taken care of in March. So, you know, I'm in like in that mindset while like looking at wedding venues and it's driving me like I I was glad we did this audible because I feel like our 55 minute episode of current day late February uh, Toriumon would be kind of lacking. Whereas this is going to be a really kind of fun episode. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But case, uh, we'll, we'll, let's talk a little bit about Kyoto, I guess. Uh, the opener ruled. That, that that's why I feel like we can really say about this Kyoto show that happened on the seventh day. Yeah, the opening match on the Kyoto show, which again is on the Dragon Gate Network, and you can watch this match on YouTube for free, actually. Uh, Dragon Daya, Madoka Kuta, and Ryoya Tanaka versus Ishin Shun Skywalker and Yoshiki Kato goes to a 15-minute time limit draw, the time limit for the openers. And, you know, I, I there's a few different ways we can slice this. We can talk about how Zebrats, and in particular the younger wing of the unit in Ishin and Kato, they seem to be finding their groove. We can talk about the the continued, I, I would say, brilliance of Shun Skywalker, or we can focus our energy first on Ryoya Tanaka from D-Courage, which is my vote, uh, because he was otherworldly in this 15-minute match. Yeah, so right as time was elapsing, Tanaka kicked out right before right kicked out of the Kamada choke slam from Ishin. Ishin did not have enough time to get the scrap buster on, but he was holding his own throughout this match. And it was something where they hit the ground running with Ryoya Tanaka versus Shun. And he gets like just enough of Shun Skywalker in that opening exchange that in the back of my head, I was like, oh, Shun's going to remember that, and he's going to pay for that for the remainder of this match. And that's what we got for like about nine minutes out of this match was Shun Skywalker and Ryoya Tanaka, and it was fantastic. Yeah, it really, it, it almost seemed like they cut off into a singles match of their own at one point, and it excited me on a number of levels because one, if you just look at it through the framework of the way that I often analyze Ryoya Tanaka, which is when Takuma Fujiwara left Dragon Gate, Drangate was not worried because Tanaka could do everything he could do and he's better looking. And I think that really is becoming apparent because, you know, part of the excitement with Fujiwara was one, and I say this as a positive, was his recklessness. You know, you never knew really what he was going to do on a house show or in Corkin or in Osaka. Every match was must-watch to that degree. But also, with Fujiwara, nobody... Nobody really saw it coming. You know, he he debuted at that Gate of Origin show in 2021 and was pretty good on that show. You know, wrestled Kagatora. Other other people were more into that debut than I was. And then by the time January rolled around, it was like, wait a minute, who 
who the hell is this kid? Why is he having the best match on every single show? And so part of the excitement for Fujiwara was just that it kind of caught a lot of us by surprise. Tanaka, we hit on this before his debut. He was featured in the This Is Dragon Gate documentary. He debuted in Osaka against Yamato. And he's been, you know, a, a rookie, a young boy. He's been losing matches, but he's been a featured player even in that role. And now in D-Courage, he's obviously gone up a level. And you see the fact that he's not only, you know, he started at, I would say, a higher level than most Japanese rookies do. But now he's excelling at a pace within D-Courage that I think is really, really exciting. And the thing that I want to see now, we talk about how this match sort of cut off into a, a singles match between he and Shun at one point. Mike, are you aware that Tanaka has never had a singles match in Cork and Hall? You know, that is the wild thing about him. That I knew in the back of my head, I would if you were going to say, Mike, uh, name Ryoya Tanaka's Cork and Hall matches, I would have gone like, I would have had to like pause for a second. I was like, I would have asked you, like, did he, has he had one? Yeah. But I feel like with the way that he debuted, and it was not like that he was like hidden, but he was kind of kept in Kansai. It felt like just around both Osaka and the build up to Kobe world, like because he is from that area, like they really specifies like a lot of his big matches over there versus over in Tokyo. Well, yeah, it you know, it's odd, right? Because he's been featured ever since his debut last May, but he's also been really protected. He's he's succeeded every level along the way. But outside of that November Corkin show, the eight-man tag where he joined D-Courage and we all raved about it and I felt like they made a guy in one night. It is his signature Corkin Hall performance up to this point. There hasn't been a lot of risk and reward with Tanaka where, you know, if he succeeds, it puts him here. But if he fails, it drops him down a rung. It's sort of just been a steady incline for him. And I'm ready to rip the Band-Aid off a little bit. And it, whether it's the, the March Corkin or the April Corkin, or especially King of Gate. I, I think it would be so incredibly foolish not to feature this guy in a big way in King of Gate, even if he loses every single match. But I'm ready for the Shun singles match. I am ready, especially in a real sink or swim scenario, I'm ready for he and Kato to have a singles match in Corkin Hall. I think that would be very interesting. I think Kato is really starting to feel himself because, you know, when he came back from injury uh, last fall, Rough around the edges, you know, obviously potential there. Nobody, he wasn't Tanaka, you know, you use the obvious example there. Tanaka, by the time he debuted his first match, there was a level of polish there that I still don't know if Kato's ever achieved. But Kato has worlds and worlds of potential. People are obviously very into him and his act. And I think it took him, it took him a second to figure out what he wanted to be as a heel. But I think he's there now. And I think it's really time to just let those guys have a moment where, Look, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt the entire promotion if they go out there and fail in Corkin and have a three and a quarter star match. I also think they're ready to have a four and a quarter star match in Corkin, and it's time they're rewarded for that. So a couple things I want to respond to. Uh, uh, first off, Ryoya and Takuma. I think like you look at Ryoya and how everything went down with Takuma it was very clear that everyone was kind of taken aback by the guy. And it was a way that it kind of changed things. Whereas there were, there has been a plan for Ryo Yatsunaka ever since he was in the dojo. Yes. It's been something that has been abundantly clear. And you look at some of these guys that 
the company will debut in this way. And it's very fitting that he is teaming with Dragon Daya. And that, like, you have your, you, you frankly have your Takuma Fujiwara debuts where everyone's just like, okay, it just kind of broke the curve for a little bit. And only now we're kind of like wrapping our heads around him as his own kind of individual. But we didn't have the opportunity in December 2021. It just was not there. So I think that you look at Tanaka and you see kind of, in a lot of ways, after a four to five year period of your Strong Machine Jays, your Daya's, your Ihashi brothers, your Shoya Satos, people that had like a different, or your TN Revolutions, uh, the two also continue along that line, of people who had like, I would call almost an elevated debut in a way that for SMJ and the Ahashis, of course, the fact they were second generation wrestlers to Dragon Daya being the inheritor of the dragon name to Shoya Sato being just kind of this uh, kind of almost local interest story in a way. You have these people that are kind of set up to do these certain kind of debuts, but Tanaka is the first one I feel like since really if we put Mochizuki Jr. aside, and I feel like we should when we have this kind of conversation case, I think Ryoya Tanaka has been the most polished out of any of them. If we look at the first year of their career, if you look at these elevated views, because we, we weren't anywhere close to this with the Ahashi brothers closing in on their year anniversary. Uh, Shoya Sato got to debut and got to have uh, several matches as a pro wrestler, which was viewed internally as a massive success for that kind of storyline but it just was not there tanaka is the person that there's been no steps back and it's been something like to a point where you saw the kyoto crowd even in this time limit draw when no one thought that he should have any chance to beat shun there were moments we got down to the uh, the three minute call the one minute call and he's still in the ring of shun skywalker and the back of the in the back of your mind you get the thought of is this kid going to do this is this going to happen and that does not really happen that often with even in a promotion that is willing to let the uh, to, to let the ponies go and just let them kind of show out this is not something that you see that often where Tanaka is not only this polished but has just gone down the checklist and has done everything and more that has been asked of him well, the crazy thing is, to sort of put a bow on this, is Tanaka's now been in Dragon Gate for longer than Takuma Fujiwara ever was, and Fujiwara's been gone from Dragon Gate longer than he was ever in the promotion. I mean, that's the 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 insane part about Fujiwara is the guy debuts at the end of November 2021. He leaves for Mexico June of 2022. They didn't have the ability to get his paperwork done to work the American Indies like Kento and Estrella did. Uh, because it was just all something that caught them by surprise. I mean, by June, they were like, okay, we have to get this kid out of here because we want to be able to push him, but he's got to go away for a little bit. And unfortunately, you know, we'll never know what was in store uh, for uh, Kento or Takuma. And that's a real bummer. But, I, you know, Tanaka, look, we've just we've just seen a natural evolution. And I think he's really on the cusp of being one of the more exciting wrestlers in all of wrestling this year. If I... Yeah, as we approach already the end of February, you know, I'm starting to look at at wrestlers that I've enjoyed in the first quarter, and it's a lot of CMLL guys. It's a handful of AEW guys, you know, Danielson, obviously, 
And then when I look at Dragon Gate, it's it's Tanaka and Shun probably at the top of the list. You know, they've been excellent this year. And this was not a show where I think you need to watch anything other than the opener, but I would go out of your way to watch the opener. Yeah, and I was four flat on it. It really felt like it was like that kind of sort of uh, kind of like the, the game plan for like this generation and especially like w- uh, of a six man tag. Like it's not like the polished thing that one would expect or for like masquerade versus red, but you see these six guys together and it's the additions of Tanaka and Kato, but you're starting to see the like everything melt in the way. Ooh, it's a that- fight. You know, there was a real physicality to this and that's part of why I'm so into Shun's work is that I think, uh, you know, whether he works stiff or not, I don't know, but I know it's, he certainly comes across like he's kicking ass every time he's in the ring. And I think that's uh, a wonderful quality to have, to say the least. So, yeah, no, I mean, this is you're right. It's not Masquerade versus R.E.D. It's not this uh, slick sort of tricked out six man, you know, Lucha style six man as this was this was a brawl that just happened to have a few great high flyers in it. Yeah, and it, it was like the thing where like we got the moments of Kato and Kakuda and just a little bit of of Kato and Kakuda, but just enough to have in the back of my head going like, all right, now Kato is finally coming across someone like out of the rookie phase who actually has his size. And that is something that'll be fun to explore later on as it was announced in the post-match year. Like really, the one notable thing happened in Kyoto. We do have a Triangle Gate match for champion gate on the third it is this d courage team madoka kakuda dragon die and ryo tanaka first is the open the triangle gate champions kai ishin and yoshiki kato so no uh we have the full cards for both uh champion gate and nostalgia gate we'll be getting more into those cards next week but we do have to note that we have three title matches on champion gate no no open the twin gate title match Yes, so that's a bummer. I think uh, I think that answers your question as to why they're doing Nostalgia Gate. I know we talked a little bit about it last week and how you were a little more negative towards just the idea of running a nostalgia show and that maybe it was a sign of weakness that they were going to have to load up the cards with what we presume to be four title matches on one Champion Gate show instead of the usual two and two. But I, th- I think now it's like, oh, they didn't... they. They don't have access to Kiyomiya for this show, so they changed formats, and I'm I'm sad we're not getting another Kiyomiya match, but I'm I'm very excited that the weekend in Osaka that's ahead. Yep, and we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, full card previews happening on next week on the program. Uh, I'm going to just run through the results in Kyoto yes, real quick. Uh, it was on the 17th, uh, attendance 312. Five matches on this day, so even a small show for Dragon Gate standards, I mean, where you... It's very rare that we see a Dragon Gate show less than six matches actually be on the network. So uh, we have that opener, uh, D-Courage versus Z-Brats go to a 15-minute time limit draw. Masaki Mochizuki and Sachi Hoko Boy lose to Kai and Johnny Valletta. Uh, we did not get the Johnny Valletta versus Masaki Mochizuki uh, interactions that one would have hoped for this. It was Valletta. Four minutes and 13 seconds with the King Kong knee drop on Sachi. Yamato and Susumu, the uh, Ray de Parejas team, going up against Yazushi Kanda and Hoho Loon. 11 minutes and 37 seconds for this match. Uh, a lot more of Kanda facing off against Yamato and Mochizuki before uh, Hoho eats the Yokosuka cutter to 
uh, for the uh, open the uh, I'm sorry the Ray de Prejas challenger team uh, gets the win there. Uh, match for Ultimo teams with KZ and UT versus the Gold Class. BB Hulk gets his win back after uh, dropping the uh, loss to Raya Tanaka. He gets the pin on UT in the main event. Ray de Prejas 2024 pre series special eight man tag team match. Dragon Kid and Rookie Doi team with Big Boss Shimizu and Strong Machine J versus Big Hug, Luis Monte, and Hio. And you know they have to team with uh, Jackie Funky Kamei and Jason Lee, the Kung Fu Masters. It is some natural vibes versus natural vibes in the finish as Strong Machine J gets the win over Jason Lee with the machine suplex. Yeah, main event was fine. I don't think it's anything going out of your way to see, but not, not an offensive match by any means. Yep, and that was the only show on the network this weekend. They had another show in Mie on the 18th. Uh, not a whole lot happening this month for Dragon Gate outside of the stuff we had at the beginning of the month and the uh, build-up to Champion Gate next week. But I think with that case, it is time for us to step back into a Torimon history and with Rewind and Rewatch for this month. We decided we are going to do an um, episode a month celebrating Dragon Gate 25 the 25th anniversary of the Dragon System this year. And this month, for the month of February, I think I'm just going to just hand it over to you because this is, it's about uh, Mochizuki contra Mochizuki, but what this episode really will kind of be about is the top line stuff and Dragon Gate 20 uh, from the year 2000 into 2000. Yes, rewind and rewatch Mochizuki contra Mochizuki. Uh, we talked on the show a month ago when I wrote the 30 Years of Masaki Mochizuki article, which if you want a career retrospective on him, you can read that at VoicesOfWrestling.com. And I talked about how I was going back and watching some Torimon stuff that I hadn't seen in years and years at this point. And I asked our listeners if they were interested in more Torimon content. And between the Discord and the DMs I got, I, I was very, uh, very excited that people cared about this and that wanted Torimon recommendations. And so needless to say, Mike, we not only will have a review at the very end of this of Mochizuki contra Mochizuki, which I, I think you would say is one of the more famous matches in Torimon history, but we're going to take you through how we got there starting in January of 2000 and, of course, ending up in February of 2002. Yeah, and it was something like as we case put this together and got the matches together what we really have in a lot of ways is the the heart of torimon japan before torimon 2000 project i feel like because we 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 need to go all the way back to january of the year 2000 and in particularly case to start start us off let's talk about january 16th of the year 2000 the first show for Torimon Japan in the year 2000 in Tokyo. Yes, so there will be a number of matches or angles that we specifically highlight as we go along this timeline. Uh, for those specific things, and I'll note them when we get to them, there will be links in the description to the Drangate Network with a timestamp of when those take place on the uh, Vamanos Amigos episodes uh, that they air on. Mike, if you're wondering where that is, I will send it to you as soon as we're done. Um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> oh, one thing I'll say for the listeners as we're doing this, I will recommend to go to the VoicesOfWrestling.com uh, web posting for this episode. For the matches there, it'll probably be a lot easier to figure things out than going through the uh, description field of whatever podcatcher yes. app. Go to VOW, check out there. We'll have all the links to all of the episodes. 
I actually was planning on going through my own collection and compare and contrasting case. I ended up being so enraptured by the footage that I just ended up watching everything on the network this time. Yeah, so everything that you need to see is on the network with the exception of one angle that I have clipped and put on my YouTube. And that will be uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it and why I can't figure out why it's not on the network. But uh, this is the timeline. Of Mochizuki contra Mochizuki, I want to mention real quick again before we begin, a lot of the angles and promos and translations, this stuff came heavily lifted from the old iHeartDG Timeline podcast, so thank you to Jay for recording podcast 12 years ago that I still use to this day, but obviously, only Case and Mike can break it down uh, the way we do. So without further ado, we go to January 16th, 2000. This is in Cork and Hall. Like Mike said, the first Torimon event of the year. And uh, as they basically approach their one-year anniversary. And you have to look at the main event here. It is the Torimon Sekigun Dragon Kid, Magnum Tokyo, and Masaki Mochizuki versus Shima Makoto and Sumo Fuji. Uh, this was, is Mochi, Mochi's in this match, right? Yes, yeah. Mochizuki is in this match as a Buko Dojo member so we need to talk about what happened before this man thank you sorry i i'm we're we're on one event and my notes are already off that does not bode (laughs) well but uh uh, yes go ahead so on this first show uh i'm going to as we go through this i'll read through the results here uh announce attendance 2320 uh hall we can we'll call 1850 1850 uh complete sellout open with kenichiro rai defeating Ryo Saito in 13 minutes and 5 seconds. Taru Chanman defeats Stalker Chikawa in 13 minutes and 2 seconds. The first thing really worth talking about in on this show, and that's worth taking a moment to talk about, Masaki Mochizuki beats Chocobo, uh, Chocobal Kobe in 3 minutes and 57 seconds. Completely just runs through him. Uh, this is Chocobal uh, Kobe was a member of Buku Dojo in the WAR days. And at this time, we are seeing Chocobal Kobe, oh, Choco Flake Kobe, consistently ask uh, Mochi to team with him. And getting to the point that they have this singles match here, Mochi just runs through the guy in four minutes. And he extends the Buku Dojo flag to him agreeing to team up with him. We go to the semi-main event, and we go to Susumu Mochizuki and Zushi Kanda defeating Ginki Horiguchi and Saito, all caps, in 25 minutes and 54 seconds. And in this match, uh, I, I forget if this was before or after this, that it was the Susumu and uh, Kanda accept membership into Crazy Max. Yeah, yeah, after the match, and- Crazy Max comes out, and they, you know, Susumu and Kanda spent most of 1999 in Mexico, in the same way that Shima and Magnum, let's say, had really dominated the Torimon Mexico scene and parts of IWRG in 97 and 98, Susumu and Kondo were sort of the next men up on that list. So they returned from Mexico on this show, and Crazy Max being the dominant unit in Torimon, they said, we want a piece of this. Right, and at this point, Crazy Max is just about at their membership zenith. At this point, they you have the original four members. You have Shima, you have Sumo Fuji. They do name changes all the time here. We'll talk about one big one throwing off Dave Meltzer later on <laughs> in the show. But uh, but you have the original four, the four that really are Crazy Max throughout its existence, Shima, Fuji, Sua, and Taru. But you also, at this time, we are starting to see the issue with Crazy Max and Case 
what happens when Crazy Max gets more than four members? Uh, things start to uh, uh, bubble up, to say the least. Right. So in this match, uh, we have Makoto. And I watched this entire match because it was something for me that I was like, I forgot the last time that I actually watched Makoto and Crazy Max. Right. Yeah. So, it's, that's a fun thing when you do 99 right. and 2000 Torimon. You're like, oh, that's right. He was still here because Makoto, for those that don't know, was later Darkness Dragon and then later Kness. And you watch him without the mask doing, you know, kind of almost like a Vampiro ripoff gimmick. Right. It's like, oh, my God, this guy, this guy was so good. And you just forget about it because of his, his later two incarnations. Yes. And it is something that also at this time, I forget exactly. Stalker Chikawa, a, a crazy Max affiliate. They're basically on a giant membership drive. And with the idea of that Shima and Sua are getting to Ultimo students before, uh, Saki gun is able to get them onto the roster and everyone's going like, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. And that yeah, yeah. leads us to this main event, Shima, uh, Sumo Fuji Makoto versus uh, Saki gun at this time, uh, Magum Tokyo, Masaki Mochizuki and dragon kick. You love this match. It's, it's fantastic. It is one of the ones where you kind of take a moment here and you look at this. Now we are almost a full year in Japan. And the big takeaway that you have is Dragon Kid is finally online. That this is the Dragon Kid vintage that we all know about, we dream about. When this is the Dragon Kid that went around to all the villages in Japan and became that inspirational wrestler that he became, he is here. And it is something where this closing stretch, and especially given the fact of what would happen in this promotion over the next, oh, let's say, 18 months, more or less, and the lead up to the three-way trios, you, you're starting to see a level of ambition here that is kind of a differentiation point, I feel like. And you have a really fun finish. Uh, Makoto uh, eats a Dragon Rana, and Dragon K gets the big win here, and immediately right after that, things go to hell. Yeah, so Susumu and Kanda hit the ring, I think initially people think, oh, my God, it's a crazy max beatdown. You know, Sekigun goes over. They're going to get revenge and, you know, link up alongside their new guys. But Susumu and Kanda, and it all happens so fast. I don't know if the audience fully registers it, but they attack not only the Sekigun guys, they attack crazy max. They take everybody out. Uh, it's it's a real quick beatdown. We talked about this again. We talked about this a month ago because the angle really jumped out to me as something that I didn't remember. I was like, oh, man, this is really unique the way they did this. Watching it again, it's like, oh my god, Susumu and Kanda hit the ring, they just beat up everybody, and then within a second, Ultimo Dragon, who's in a gold mask and a tuxedo, he comes in, and he cleans house on Susumu and Kanda, and you don't know exactly in the moment where things are going, but it feels like there is the start of a giant shift within the promotion. Yeah, and if 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 Case's description did not really illustrate this enough ultimo a glittering perfect gold mask gold class gold class would be jealous of this mask the uh one big takeaway from this timeline case uh ancillary stuff happening in dragon gate ultimo in 2000 2002 when he comes out and lays out the law it looks like the baddest motherfucker Dude, alive. Uh, we're, we're, every single we're, time we're gonna talk about it later uh, december 2001 ultimo dragon was looking good yeah, it, it is something where he comes out in the tuxedo and he just does 
like like his back heel kick. You know he does the spinning back mule kick case, and it is just phenomenal. <laughs> he ne- he never it- did a comeback this good in WCW. This is the best striking no. Ultimo ever did, and he's in a tux. Yeah, d- just being the shit out of his students is just the best <laughs> way of doing that. But the the thing about this angle, and I I would encourage folks to go back and watch the match. I was four and a quarter on the main event there. It is something that as I watched it, I, I was like, this is insane. As I sat down and watched more things as I went along it, I'm like, it's not four and a quarter. It's not four and a half, Mike. It's four and a quarter. But the afterwards angle is just bananas. It is probably, I would say, in, in a lot of ways, the encapsulation of the last year and Crazy Max kind of, in a way, for the first time, not having everyone's number no i mean i wrote about this a lot in the mochizuki article and we kind of transition into this as we get into april of 2000 but the thing that really dawned on me and it i'm not the only person to make this observation but the thing that that really struck me writing about the career of mochizuki and writing about the lifespan of the original m2k which is what this covers we're going to talk about everything great that m2k did during their original existence is Again, you think about Michinoku Pro, when they had Kayentai versus the Seki Gun, and they never really had anything after that. There's obviously quality stuff before, and there's quality stuff after, but nobody references 1994 Michinoku Pro, and nobody really references 2001 Michinoku Pro. If they're talking about Kayentai or anything post-Kayentai, it's oddly enough, it's Crazy Max that they're talking about when Shima came in. But M2K which we see the formation of here, April 25th, 2000. Kanda comes back to Japan from Mexico. He and Mochizuki have a 20-minute time limit draw. They earn each other's respect. And all of a sudden, after it looks like Mochizuki and Chakabal Kobe are going to be a team, they agree to form a partnership. They break out the Yokosuka jumpers. Ladies and gentlemen, Masaki Mochizuki, Susumu Mochizuki, Yasushi Kanda. M2K is formed. Chakabal Kobe is not included. Chakabal Kobe is devastated. But we get with M2K, a new heel unit, the chance to turn Crazy Max face in really just extended lifespan in Torimon. Because if if the promotion exists in 2000 and 2001 as Crazy Max versus Magnum and Crazy Max versus Dragon Kid and Crazy Max versus Ryo Saito, nothing, it, it just would have been stale so fast. Again, you think about the short lifespan of the Kayentai versus Sekigun stuff. Michinoku Pro never really was able to get out of their own way. In a year and a half into the existence of Torimon, they were able to find another thing to uh, to latch onto. And, you know, we have M2K tributes to this day as a result. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Yeah, and I think it's, at this point, it's worth kind of talking about the overall alignment shift here because I think that this moment here, as you're talking about it, really showed that uh, uh, Torimon was not going to be kind of a flash in the pan, and it was going to show a level of longevity that other uh, promotions within the Lucha Rest tree never showed. I, you, 
as you mentioned, you had about two years of Kaintai DX versus M Pro Psyche Gun. You had about 21 months or thereabout with everyone from Hamada's uh, Universal case. I feel like Hamada's Universal lasted a bit longer, like the same way that Michinoku Pro's relevance kind of lingered around because of Crazy Max. But you're really talking about a really compressed time. Yeah, I mean, the, With- the Hamada stuff, the best of it is it begins in March of 90, and it's it's oddly enough, I mean, it's really tied to Ultimo because the best stuff is March of 1990 through the end of 91, and then by 92... We have the Ultimo character. He's in SWS. He's in CMLL in Mexico. And there's, you know, there's worthwhile stuff, 92, 93, and to a lesser degree, you know, what was left in 94. But yeah, I mean, I look at Hamada's run really as a two-year run where 90 and 91, it's probably the best wrestling on earth that is in all Japan. But it's a, it's a very short run. Yeah, so you have this uh, renewal that happens because you have this Neil he- this new heel group, and part of that happens because I think you look at the year 1999, and the one thing that really happens that I think kind of exceeds expectations or exceeds plans is the fact that Shima kind of transcends being the top heel much faster than Magnum Tokyo was able to kind of keep up as the top babyface. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. So, so you you have to move. Uh, crazy max into the face kind of tweener column and you have m2k and you and one of the things case that i looked up that i want to kind of talk about here is the difference between m2k and crazy max and more so than anything else what is the the thing you identify with crazy max you're thinking about black and white or combat mode with fatigues we do have a little bit of combat mode in this uh in this timeline but what we you really had about Crazy Max is a certain kind of punk aesthetic and a certain kind of vibe that was so contrary to the remainder of Tori Mana. I mean, the thing about Crazy Max is like, even though they were heels, you had Shima, the Dreamboat, you had Suwa, who had a level sex appeal, and Taru, who was very, very popular with certain parts of demographics. So you, you're Yakuza, able to transition Yakuza that over. bosses, etc. <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> was something where uh, Japanese middle Taru, management. <laughs> I mean, Taru. Uh, I I am not telling stories out of school. Taru did very well, and it was something where it was able to transition this there, and you replace this with this young punk uh, gimmick and aesthetic. You are playing GWE by or GWD from the Machine Gun Elephant, a big uh, post of. Uh, a punk band and of in Japan, you are wearing these Yokosuka jumpers, which coming from Yokosuka, which Sasumi Yokosuka, but more so, these jackets are known as Sukiyans, and they were made by uh, teenagers at, during the occupation uh, because all of the leftover parachute fabric and these th- this fabric that was just everywhere as this kind of thing happens, you get all these leftover material, and they've these young punks who more often than not did not have the money wanted to make fashionable jackets. And these jackets kind of embodied in a way, the Yokosuka kind of area, but also a certain aesthetic that I feel like M2K when, when M2K comes aboard when M2K becomes like this heel group case. And as you mentioned, like it becomes so popular that you're able to bring it back three times afterwards, but you see with uh, M2K as an evolution of crazy max, now we are getting into like full aesthetics. We're getting to kind of unit just the vibes 
for better or worse. And we're starting to see some of the true heel lineage start up here. The great thing that M2K provides is obviously the way Crazy Max was presented once M2K comes into the fold changes to a degree. They're not beating guys up from behind. They're not doing a lot of post-match beatdowns. But the overall aesthetic and tone of Crazy Max doesn't really change once they turn face. They were popular enough to accomplish the turn, and M2K was good enough to where it's not like Crazy Max lost any bite. I mean, they don't really lose bite until 2003, 2004, and that's more so, you know, they just... They didn't have anybody... They they didn't have anywhere to go. By that point, they had been kings kings of the mountain for three years, but the turn, I don't think... And they lost... Yeah, go ahead. And they lost Sua and Taru very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, in terms of the turn, I don't... I don't think it could have been executed any better. Oh, absolutely not. And it is something where, in doing so, and I think that we see here as Ultimo and Okamura and people around the promotion start to notice this this heel setup that you do that we see through this timeline and we already kind of see a little bit from Crazy Max. We're going to see how you create one of the more endearing kind of figures in the company by making them the baddest person in, in this part of the planet. And it is kind of remarkable to see over this two-year period how Crazy Max is and uh, M2K, they go back and forth, and they both maintain their edge at such an extent. But afterwards, how everything kind of changes from Asaki Mochizuki. June 2nd, 2000, that's the first time that Crazy Max and M2K wrestle. It's a trios match, Shima, Makoto, and uh, Don Fuji versus, again, Mochizuki, Mochizuki, and Kanda. That it airs on TV. That same episode has a lot of the T2P debuts from Mexico. So I would recommend checking it out. That's a pretty fun episode of TV. And then we move on to June 4th, 2000, which is uh, what we now recognize as Kobe World, the big show in Kobe. And we get an undercard M2K match with M2K versus Daiwu Kawauchi, Genki Horiguchi, and all caps Saito. They beat up the referee. They get DQ'd. Not exactly hot fighting, to say the least here. Yeah, Genkai, for those who uh, don't remember, Genkai is, was around a lot back then, making uh, the second uh, uh, Kobe, uh, Kobe World Hall show. Also on this show, Taru defeated Makoto in a Loser Leaves Torimon match. I did not rewatch this. I have no memory of this match happening. Honestly, I can't even imagine these guys wrestling each other. Yeah, uh, Taru and Makoto, as we said, as soon as Crazy Max gets four, gets more than four people, bad things happen. Taru and Makoto never get along uh, during Makoto's kind of scent in there. They eventually have this loser mate leaves town match. That case, what I remember is basically a whole bunch of Taru doing his uh, slum lord MMA, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. There's there's good Taru coming up, but I would not. Oh yeah, I, I would not recommend Taru versus Makota just off of memory alone. So that is Kobe World that year headlined uh, a, uh, a Levelos uh, Suicida tag match, Great Sasuke and Tiger Mask versus Shima and Sumo Fuji. This is the same format they did for the Dead or Alive Cage in 2001, where it was tag team match and the losers of the match then wrestled in a hair versus hair match. So you had uh shima and fuji afterwards and shima went over on fuji obviously so that is kobe world not a particularly great show uh not really anything that sticks out there i feel like i mean there was a sua versus dragon kid match that i don't think people 
think super highly of. Their best stuff would come in August, which we'll talk about in just a second. Yeah. I feel like Aja Kong versus Stalker Ichikawa is kind of the highlight of that show. Yeah, I think at that point, like if we're talking about the uh, first uh, real Kobe World show, it's not that uh, it's really well regarded other than like you still have overwhelmingly Sasuke and Taka involved. But what you're the kind of big takeaway was, OK, they got a lot of kind of uh, press for the Aja Kong versus Stalker match. And they realized they had something really there. And if there's one big takeaway, I think you really get to see how Stalker's career kind of changes in a big way because of that. Yeah, really, this is the golden era of Stalker, I think, because they're getting really high-profile opponents in there, and it seems uh, to be the one thing in Torimon that ever got really positive press coverage. So, just so that we have for the record here, this is the first hair match Shima would win during this timeline. A pretty good record of those hair matches, right? I mean, really, there's only... I only have two records of him losing hair matches. It's what, so. the cage match from 2015? And what's the other one? Gamma. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, I don't. I, but, no, we're I, we're I not mean, doing a rewind and rewatch on Shima versus Gamma. Let me tell you right now. Yeah, uh, but we're going to leave uh, Muscle Outlaws and Blood Generation in the past. <laughs> so we go to August 24th, 2000. Uh, we highlighted, obviously, the angle at the end of the, Ju uh, the January Corkin show. August 24th, 2000. This is essential viewing if you're a Torimon fan uh, for a number of reasons. It's a phenomenal show, a pretty famous show at this point, because you not only have the Sua versus Dragon Kid finale, which I think is one of the more famous matches in the history of Torimon, but at the start of this show, M2K comes out, microphone in hand. Masaki Mochizuki announces that going forward, M2K would be enforcing the double ringout committee. They wanted no part of hot fighting. They did not want clean finishes. Their goal was that every match of theirs was going to end in a double countout, which sets the stage for in the middle of the card, Shima, Sumo Fuji, and Taru versus M2K. And Mike, what I will say is personally, if I was making a Desert Island disc of maybe 15 of my favorite matches, I've seen 100 matches better than this one. I don't know if I've seen 15 matches that I personally enjoy more than this one. I think because you see over this match, and this match is basically a half an hour. Not much of it is edited off the network. No, you, you, so you lose not... the first few minutes, but it's really not much. Yeah, I mean, a first few minutes of a crazy match, a crazy max match, you probably looked out on not seeing a lot of Taru, <laughs> you know, I mean, but the, like the one thing about this match, I think for me really is you see the thesis of the double countout committee, you see a lot of teases for this, the the cork and crowd is already kind of on tender hooks trying to see this and it is something where you have this group that for essentially in four months, you have like them in this stasis period, kind of forming themselves. You're 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 tossing off Choco. You are going to eventually get uh, uh, darkness and also Choco Flake. Uh, we'll get into that in a bit, but it is something where they kind of set up this group as its own kind of vibe, and then they put out the thesis here, and that's what this matches. This matches the thesis to what MTK would do virtually from off and on for the next 24 years. I, I will revert the focus back to Susumu and Mochizuki momentarily, but I, I have to mention part of the joy of this 
especially if you're a, a newer Dragon Gate fan, like if you picked up Dragon Gate during the pandemic, let's say, because I know we have a lot of listeners that did, going back to this era and watching Shima, it he is he is otherworldly. I mean, he is such an animal. He is so charismatic, and specifically in this match, the footage starts, it's Fuji and Mochi going at it, but then Shima and Susumu tag in, and they do just the most beautiful Lucha-inspired, but sped up so they're not going half-speed like a like a Maestro would. The most beautiful Lucha sequence I've ever seen. And it it, you know, I've watched this match a dozen times in my life. I love this match. It smacked me in the face watching it this time. Just how good Shima specifically was in this match and a number of other matches that we watched as well. Yeah, and I think we might want to kind of use this as like a time to talk a little bit more about what a 2000 Shima is, what a 2000 Mochizuki, what 2000 Kanda is. Because I think you, the person that's going to take you aback, I think more so about how he wrestles so differently is Shima. Because his knees are still there, his neck's not given out on him. He just does like the most insane tornadoes. Yeah, oh my god, it's just... He it is the prettiest die you will see. It is something where it it is precise. It's like no wonder he is this way about high flyers now. Because if his knees held up, he would have been as much of a high flyer as Dragon Kid was. I, I I I like being artistic with my words. I like painting a picture. There's no other way to say it. He's so fucking good. It's just it's remarkable watching him because again, not only does he have the insane in-ring ability where he has the high flying skills that you mentioned. He has the mat skills that I mentioned, but he is such an alpha male and it's just unbelievable. He's a fucker. I don't, I don't know of a guy and this is, you know, this, this comes full circle to something that uh, came up in the voices of wrestling discord a month ago. I, I forget what show it was. Maybe it was, maybe it was the last Kyoto show where it's just like a lot of guys sleepwalking through that show and Alan Forrell started the discussion of like, man, we just need some guys in Japan and every promotion to really grab things by the throat. I I don't know if there's a single wrestler in Japan right now that matches just the day in, day out intensity of Shima in 2000, 2001. I don't think it's there because I think if there was, I think he would jump out to us in a very obvious way. I think that... I, I don't think that we're in a world right now that a presence like this could exist. No, and there, I, look, you know, all, all, yeah. all Japan specifically, Kento, Kento is not that energy. Yume Oyagi is wonderful. He's not that energy. Nakajima, just because of his age, you know, he's a ghastly 35 years old now. It's th- But he's also freelancing and doing his own thing. He's more interesting, but it's not because it's like a new no, thing no, in no, all no, Japan no, it, doing his own yeah, thing. It's, it's, not, it's not the same. I mean, I, I think I think Shun is the closest thing Drangate has, which is why I'm so fond of him. But it's, I mean, he's he's maybe a seven if Shima's a 10. And, and more often than not, as cliche as it might be, I mean, Shima's at 11. He's just, he's on a different yeah. level. He is on a different planet in this match. It's really remarkable. It is something where now 20, almost 25 years of hindsight case from this match. Uh, do we think that like in retrospect, some of the people around him might've been like, we need to let some of the air out. In, in, because in like you, 
Oh, just in general, because like you are seeing someone again when we talk about Shima. So at this point, he is only 22. God. And he is already walking around like uh, you're talking about being uh, being poetic about your words. He walks around like he's got the uh, the, the, the biggest, you know what? And he knows oh, it's, it. it's insane. In these, yeah, it's absolutely insane. It, 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 and like the closest thing that we've had to a moment like that, I would say, okay, so over the last like few years, Gene Blast coming back and putting in that kind of performance against not everyone's like, oh, who is this yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, That's the closest thing. And again, we're talking about someone who might have been a six when Shima, at least at this time period, was permanently at an 11. There's some stuff when you think about the fact that, you know, these guys are, even if they have been training in Mexico since maybe 97, they're they're in reality, you know, a year and a half or two years into, the, into their careers. The timing of some of this stuff, the box attacks, in the counters, in just the fluidity of it. Like we we talked about the January six man, and it's it's you know, it's a four-star match. You gave it four and a quarter. There's still those little kinks, those little hiccups where it's like, oh, you know, Dra- Dragon Kids, he's not entirely there yet. You know, Magnum uh, Forever Work in Progress, even Crazy Max, you know, they're they're great, but they're not as great as they ended up being. This match, everything comes together in this beautiful way where, you know, you have some great near falls and then you know, it's obvious when the finish happens because it's it's a very distinct, okay, M2K gets control, they throw Crazy Max out of the ring, and they take them to all corners of the venue. They try to get them as far away from the ring as possible. You get Fuji trying to throw Susumu off the balcony, which elicits genuine shock and horror from the audience. And then the finish comes where you have Mochi uh, yanking Shima out of the ring right before he can get back and win the match. And so the double ring out happens. The audience accepts this finish for what it is it's a very controversial thing i mean i know some die you know some some hardcore diehard dragon gate fans who are just not into the double count out finish the way it's set up the way it's established and the way it's executed i adore it and this match uh far from the best m2k versus crazy max six man but forever my favorite yeah it's something where they announce this to the crowd at the top of the show that this is what they're going to do, but you you kind of get to experience, and you have to think about this, look at this from someone who was in the building on the 24th of uh, August 2000, not someone sitting here 24 years later. Think about what it is, like, you hear this announced, like, that this new heel group, like, they're so despicable, they're not even going to pin the guys. They count... uh basically we're making the match everything go to a double count out the least satisfying thing possible as a victory in their books the ultimate victories and they're going to perform that and they're going that's their number one goal from now on and you see 25 minutes of a audience try to come to terms with what that is each time because they're they tease at what they have about two good teases before they go for the real course and as you're bringing this up case like we are watching this with eyes that are so used to kind of this happening i would just love to somehow teleport back and be able to sit next to someone in the audience and be able to kind of observe and see how just like this kind of comes together and how the crowd kind of makes a determination about how they feel about this because it is something here in this august performance so the crowd was like oh it happened but then we'll see very quickly how the double countout committee changes everything. The only historical comp that I can think of, and I know zero of the Torimon audience had seen this match, uh, so they had no real recollection or knowledge of it, but in 
85, All Japan did Ric Flair versus Rick Martel. And Flair was the NWA champion and Martel was the AWA champion. And this is pre-90s All Japan, so double countouts are our regular finish that Baba would use in the main events. Japanese crowd is hip to it. They know it's champion versus champion. It's it's rival titles, and it's two guys that don't lose in All Japan to begin with. They know a double countout's coming, and they get hip to the countouts more so than the near falls of the submission attempts. And it's it's one of my favorite 80s All Japan matches as a result because the atmosphere is so different and the match is very good also. Uh, but that's really the only thing I can think of in the history of wrestling that would have been anywhere similar to this. And I, I would say the crossover between 80s All Japan fans and 2000 Torimon fans is exactly zero. Yeah, n- none of them in the moment, case Only in respect. <laughs> uh, uh, some other flowers to give out here. Uh, we don't talk a lot about Sumo Fuji in this match. We talk a lot about Shima. We talk a lot about M2K and all that happened. Fuji at this point, low-key, just like at a point where he's willing to just be a suplex machine and just throwing people around in this. It is something where you you always are in these crazy max matches. You, you, your your eye immediately goes to Shima because how can it be? He is at one point like every bit of a phenom as any phenomenal wrestler ever was. Like, and you're seeing him at that moment. You, if you have Sue in the match, you you know things are going to get out of control. You're going to keep your eye on that. Taru, you're like okay, you're not going to watch that. But Fuji is always the one that kind of gets the back seat. And I think that that when you're talking about a crazy max six man. One of a, a very strong Fuji uh, performance, not like the top line Don Fuji and Crazy Max performance, but something that was kind of fun to see that Don Fuji got to have his moment in this really important. I think if you've never watched this era of Fuji, if you only really know the last 10 years of his career, you will be stunned. Not that he doesn't work hard now, but Fuji can get a lot doing very little. You will be stunned at how hard Fuji works in all of these matches. A total man possessed. He's kind of the locomotive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he it. adds. You know, I mean, he's he's the Tauway of these matches. He he's not the best in ring worker, but he adds character that makes you know in the same way that the All Japan tags and six mans are so special because you have these elite workers and then Tauway, who is essentially the sprinkles on top. Fuji is very much, uh, very much that of the Torimon Sunday. Yeah, <laughs> you like that, don't you? That was good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah uh, I, I'm trying to decide who the cherry is. It, 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 that, that's Magnum, right? Uh, yes, yeah, very much so. It's pretty to look yeah. at, you know, but uh, disposable at the very least. <laughs> yeah, I got into a long discussion this week uh, with Kings about like never really like eating cherries because I only knew them as like the uh, ice cream sundae cherries or like the maraschino yeah. cherries and like a. And, and like a uh, Shirley Temple, like I never like had like cherries. Do people like, just do people eat cherries? You know, a president died because he ate too much cherries and chilled milk. I I don't have CNN on CNN on. Was it our current president? No, okay. no, no. You would you, you would couldn't rule it out. <laughs> but like I've yeah, got, no, like I've got Billy Kincaid versus Hubba on in the background. But if I need to switch to a news organization, let me know. <laughs> Buddy, I've got any. I got Nintendo Entertainment System streams going. <laughs> this is what happens now. Without the, the the fun compare and contrast, if you want to look at like our first series and and like the current series of us doing rewind and rewatch, we used to have Dark and Dark Elevation. That's right. Oh my god, week. that was fun. 
yeah. But all right, well, let's go to so, let's go to the Observer. This is the August twenty eighth, two thousand edition because not only was M two K becoming a dominant force in Toriyamon, but they also spent some time in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Dave writes in regards to All Japan: the new tour opened on August twentieth at Corrigan Hall before the usual sellout of two thousand one hundred fans and featured an undercard angle to build up cooperation with Toriyamon. In a Lucha Libre-style match, Super Parka and Super Calo beat Halloween and Damien. After the match, Torimon Grapplers, I love that he called them Grapplers, Susumu Mochizuki, Yasushi Kanda, and Masaki Mochizuki came to the ring, and Masaki Mochizuki grabbed the mic and said they could do Lucha Libre better than the Mexicans, and then challenged them to a match in the future. That match would take place on August 29th, 2000, which was the same day as a Torimon show in Osaka. So M2K announced they would boycott the Torimon show and instead work All Japan, which was taking place that day in Kobe Sambo Hall. Yeah, and at this point, we're talking about uh, post-split uh, All yeah, Japan. Yeah, fresh uh, post-split. I mean, this is... They've got Kawada and Stan Hansen working main events. You know, this is Sabu coming mm-hmm. back to the promotion and uh, and Fuchi on the undercards. This is jarring. This is certainly not Masawa's All Japan. Right, and I mean, like, to the extent you're seeing Halloween and Damian yes. on this show. Super Parka, for those who do not know, would later become uh, AAA's La Parka. Interesting. So, there we there go. There you go. Uh, we move to October now. This is October 1st, 2000. They run a show, Torimon does, in Differ Ariake, Magnum Tokyo versus All Cap Saito, Taro versus Genki Horiguchi, Ryo Saito squashes Chocobal Kobe, uh, a bunch of other stuff on this card, but most importantly... You get a six-man tag team elimination match. Shima, Sumo Fuji, and Suwa now joining the fold versus M2K. This is a 37-minute six-man elimination match, and we get what feels like probably 32 or 33 minutes of it. There's definitely some stuff cut on TV, but it doesn't feel like much. And uh, I have in our notes here, Mike, and then I'll throw it off to you. From an in-ring standpoint, this is probably the better of the two matches between this and the August tag. I just happen to prefer the August match a little bit better. Yeah, it it is something where I think that you're looking at a time here where you're starting to see, like, the pairings suss out. And it it is something that, like, with, with these kinds of Elimination Falls matches... And with that, they're able to, throughout the promotion, when they're running with basically 12 native guys and then whatever they've been able to get along with, you know, like at this point, adding in these things and providing different wrinkles to it. I think in, in a lot of ways, when we when you talk about pre-T2P and how Torimon was really kind of set up at this point, you're really at a point where this promotion is just trying to you you know finding ways to full fully have a full show without bringing in your arashis and your ginkais at the the interesting thing with this match is mochizuki gets eliminated eliminated first and shima gets eliminated second so you really have prolonged fuji and sua versus mochizuki uh susumu mochizuki and kanda and I think, you know, in the last match we highlighted, you know, contextualizing Shima and Mochizuki in 2000, you know, Masaki Mochizuki still kind of being a, a pudgy punk rock kicker. Uh, it's important to note, you know, this is Kanda pre-neck injury, and a lot of his career does not exist pre-neck injury. We'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, but, man, I really enjoyed watching 2000 Yasushi Kanda here. 
He is so skinny. Yes. It is. Which is odd and because it, he obviously, it, well, you know, a little chunky throughout his later years. Right. And it is something where, it, it, is it something where, like, after he returns and everything, like, he's able to get back? Like, it's just, like, his body changes, you know, metabolism is just not what it was when he was in his young, tw- in his early 20s. It's something with, like, the injury, like, changes things. But we really have about, what is it, about 27 months of him before the he, he gets the injury he goes away for essentially four years and then i mean essentially i i mean his wrestling career afterwards is three is almost five times as long as his career beforehand yeah yeah that's crazy yeah it's wild. so that is that is a match worth watching it's not highlighted you'll have to find that on your own but it's on the network and the october 1st 2000 upload that elimination match which takes us finally to Kobe Chicken George, November 8th, 2000. Mike, I know you, you've you been doing some work on Kobe Chicken George, but real quick, for those that don't know, I know we've talked about it a bunch, but explain to the folks at home uh, the importance of Kobe Chicken George in this era specifically. Yeah, and this gets to the point also about how this promotion kind of has developed through the times. Kobe Chicken George was their, essentially their home venue inside the home base of Kobe. Uh, they would have a certain like special series of shows that were called the Toriyaman Japan Premium Live Match. Why is it called Live Match? Because Kobe Chicken George is what's called a live house, which is a small uh, venue, usually about 300 to 500 capacity, that would be like a neighborhood uh, coffee shop or bar or something that would play live music nonstop. And Kobe Chicken George is one that it still exists to this day, but was one up until the uh, Dragon Gate days. And I still have uh, work that will be put together eventually about uh, the history of kind of Dragon Gate within Kobe City. But this was like kind of their first kind of temple here, at least natively within the city. And it's something where when we talk about like the aesthetic of Dragon Gate, a lot of it was bolstered by the fact that at least in the hometown, you would go to the place that I mean, that the, the the artists that play uh, Kobe Chuck and George, uh, George Thurgood and Destroyers played it several times. <laughs> like it's a legit venue that like in the neighborhood would also have this uh, uh, wrestling promotion and it, it helped develop kind of the sheen of it being punk rock. But I mean, part of this was like as they're kind of melding into this touring promotion. I mean, you have 24 shows, four tours in the first year, uh, 2000 things are now a lot more, of what you would know today and would be kind of building up to the situation that would happen in 2004 with the roster. But you have to be running these shows basically monthly or thereabouts, not at this point monthly, but eventually be thereabouts about monthly in your hometown. And when you have a group of 12 or 15 as your core kind of rosters, you have to shake things up here. And when you think about like hometown stuff, that's why you get to see stuff like a Captain's Fall six-man tag team match to see who's going to be the captains between M2K and Crazy Max. So you have to do these things to keep it kind of a fresh gimmick, even though we're, we're less than a year into this. But when you're running Kobe monthly at this point or building up to run it monthly, you kind of need to be able to show that little bit of variety. Yes, so uh, like you just said, November 8th, 2000, Captain's Fall six-man tag team match is your main event. They drew straws at the start of the show to determine who the captains were going to be, and the captains were Taru and Yasushi Kanda. Mike, did you watch this match? I haven't watched this one in years. It's worth watching it 
only for the first 10 seconds because it's Shima, Stalker, and Taro. And Stalker demands that he start the match. You know, Shima's like in the ring ready to go. And Stalker's like, no, 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 me, 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 me. Taro's like, hey, you know, I think I think we're going to have Shima start this one. Taro's like, or, you know, Stalker's like, no, I'm going to start this match. So it's him and Mochizuki. He runs at Mochi as the bell rings. And you know that kick Mochi does a lot of the times in the corner where it's like it's like a standing stomp. You know, he just lifts his leg and just kicks a guy in the chest. Right, yeah. He does that with Starker Chikawa running at him and pins him. And it is one of the funniest <laughs> Stalker spots I've ever seen. I watched it this afternoon and lost my mind. It, it just looked so ridiculous. So Stalker gets eliminated. And so it ends up being, you know, a glorified handicap match. It's Shima and Taru versus M2K. Uh, but nevertheless, they come out ahead and uh, Taru pins Kanda. Or I'm sorry, Shima pins Kanda. And that sets up a post-match promo where a number of things happen. One, we get a hair versus hair match set up. This is President Okamura at ringside. He sets up a hair versus hair match for the final Corkin Hall of 2000. It was supposed to be, and the way the promo was set up, it was supposed to be M2K versus Shima, Stalker, and Taru in a six-man tag team match. But a week later, Mochizuki would get injured. The last time he took time off because of an injury... And so the match that we'll talk about in just a minute was later changed to a tag team match. Also, and this is not shown on the network, but Chocoball Kobe showed up, former Buku Dojo friend of Asaki Mochizuki. He had been trying to get into M2K. So he showed up with the shirt and the glasses and the Yokosuka jumper. He begged and pleaded, and M2K had their fourth member in Chocoball Kobe all after this match. Yeah, and it is something where... I, I think like you start to see a little bit of the color of the promotion. Okamura at this point uh, will wrestle some, not a whole lot, but at this point, uh, greatly, I would say, kind of being the point person day to day on Torimon Japan tours. Way, way more point. Okamura than I remembered actually doing the rewatch for some of this stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and it's something where from the power of hindsight, like we can clearly say like, and, and with like interviews and discussions we've had with people and then around the company, Okamura was basically running the ship. It was either him or Kido whenever, uh, uh, Ultima was in Mexico. So whenever they needed to have a matchmaker, whenever they needed to have kind of an authority figure, Okamura was well enough known at this point to get his hands dirty in the way that, uh, Ultimo might not be always be able to, and he be, kind of became already a presence at Torimon. November 27th in Kagoshima. This is on the network. Daiwu, Kawauchi, and Darkness Dragon. They wrestled Susumu and Kanda. Darkness refuses to tag in. And then at the end of the match, he turns on Kawauchi and joins M2K, which takes us to Cork and Hall on December 21st, 2000. The show starts with a M2K in-ring promo. They are at full strength. It is not only Masaki Mochizuki, Susumu Mochizuki, and Yasushi Kanda, but also Darkness Dragon, and the man we want to do is Chocobal Kobe, but when Kobe introduced himself and said his name, Mochizuki got pissed. He said, we can't have anybody from Kobe in this unit. Your new name is Choco Flake Keiichi. Yeah, and it's something where, like, we'll see a little bit more of old Choco Flake here. But it's worth noting at this point that you have a five-on-five dynamic. Uh, Stalker is in Crazy Max. He's the fifth member of Crazy Max, and we'll see how well that goes for him 
in the long term, I'm certain that they will finally, you know, be a happy quintet. Of course, naturally. Um, so we get we get that show opening promo, and at this point, the six man tag hair versus hair that I had just referenced, which was M2K versus Shima Stalker and Taru. This had been promoted until the day of the show. I, I don't know if this was a case of not knowing what Mochizuki's health level was going to be like, or if they just knew they had an angle prepared and were going to run with this anyway. So uh, they want to go ahead with the match as a uh, three-on-two match, but Ultima won't allow it. So they draw straws, Crazy Max does, with the short straw not being able to participate. Shima draws the short straw. So instead of having Shima and Taru versus M2K, you have Stalker Ichikawa and Taru versus M2K. And this is where we once again need to stop down, highlight this match. December 21st, 2000, hair versus hair, Stalker Ichikawa and Taru versus Susumu Mochizuki and Yasushi Kanda. As far as I'm concerned, this is the real rewind and rewatch because, Mike, I have a, I have a number of things to say about this match. First and foremost, I've been writing about Drangit for nine years. We've been doing this podcast for a very long time. I consider myself to be about as knowledgeable as any English speaker when it comes to this subject. I had no knowledge of this match. I had no recollection of it. I feel like I've never heard anybody talk about it. And I love this match more than words can describe. It's something where power of hindsight again. I'm like, oh yeah, no, uh, there was a double apuestas in the year at the last Corkin show. But until we started doing this, uh, this part of the timeline case completely forgot about it as well and it is something where you might be used to us and and you might think we don't have a very strong opinion or a very high opinion of of uh, taru as an ending wrestler and you would be right but in this match in the same way that we don't always have the highest opinion of uh, punch tomonaga or we know certain things about soccer chikawa we got to see a insanely molten crowd just going insane for Taru and Stalker Chikawa at the top of, I think you could say, the Taru's working ability. And then also Stalker at the time is like, he's already kind of made his mint as the comedy wrestler. He's reminding people, oh, wait, he actually is like a really trained wrestler. And maybe he is someone that like we should not always overlook in this. And you get this insanely molten match that comes down to as as how it kind of has to into Shima bailing everyone out, which is perfect. I mean, that's that that's what you expect out of Crazy Max in the year two thousand, right? Uh, it's look. Uh, there's a number of specific spots that I want to highlight before before we talk about that. I had I had a thought about you during this match because again. Unless I'm forgetting it, and I would have had to have watched this match 2015 or 2016, and I have no recollection of it uh, of it if I did. As far as I'm concerned, this is the first time I've ever seen this. I watched. Yeah, it's uh, fair to say. I feel like the same way too. I watched this match, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I thought about you, and I thought about if you had a vanity promotion, this is what your main events would always look like. To me, this was like lucha mixed with the good parts of American wrestling uh, of like contemporary American wrestling mixed with a territory blow off. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you didn't like this match as much as I did, but I watched this with the biggest smile on my face thinking my friend, Mike Spears is going to adore this match. Four and a quarter stars 
It is phenomenal. I'm, I'm saying it, rating. It is it is must watch if you've never seen it. It is. It, I remember a long time ago having a it's something with Jay and Jay mentioning like the thing about people think about Dragon Gate is that they always focus on the lucha rest aspect, but they forget the fact that like this is a generation of wrestlers that in a lot of ways Memphis is kind of like the peak of storytelling and wrestling at a certain time, especially internationally and. In a lot of ways, Dragon Gate can be a very Memphis-like promotion. And this is as Memphis of a Dragon Gate match as you'll ever see. It, it, it is. It, it's, um, it's, you're exactly it's right. It's amazing. It, it's so good. I mean, there's a number of things that I want to highlight here. One, Stalker goes to the top rope at one point. He does kind of the old-school walk with Taro holding his hand. And then, like you said, classically trained wrestler leaps off the top rope, does a stunning head scissors to Susumu. And that's kind of where it's like, oh, this is... This is not the Stalker Ichikawa that you've seen before. This isn't the one that just got kicked uh, to death by Mochizuki a month earlier. Stalker is, like, really wrestling here. Um, Ted Tanabe is the referee, the Michinoku Pro referee. He goes down at one point. Right after that, Taru hits the Taru Driller on Kanda for a visual fall, but there is no referee. So President Okamura jumps into the ring, tries to count. M2K breaks it up. Shortly thereafter, chaos. Okamura gets shoved down by Susumu. Mochizuki destroys him in the head with the blue box. And then it is brutal. It is my <laughs> might, might possibly be the year 2000's most brutal box attack. Like we have to go through all the all the footage, but I'm willing to give that retroactively to Masaki Mochizuki for the year 2000. Given what we know about Okamura in 2024, <laughs> it is insane to watch how hard this man gets hit with this box in 2000. It's just like, oh, oh, that was that was a receipt for something. I just don't know what. Uh, yeah. so, it, it, it is something whenever now like just quick sidebar yeah, yeah. i i do there's certain things that just now completely you watch with new eyes and you go like that must have felt really good mochi oh my god yes absolutely so mochizuki drills him with the blue box they're not done chocobo kobe hops up on the apron they give okamura a spike pile driver to the floor <laughs> it's just like i've never seen a Toriyamon match like this so it goes on it goes on taro gets the upper hand on susumu once again but darkness dragon comes out darkness dragon who of course if you want to go really galaxy brain we talked about how he and taru never got along when dragon was makoto he comes out he gets the upper hand on taru but then shima comes out he hits uh uh the uh he hits darkness with the blue box and then he and darkness dragon run to the back that sets up a scenario uh where the match dies down for a second and then all of a sudden and i still can't fully explain why this happened but shima comes back out in the darkness dragon match in the darkness dragon mask he hits the venus punch and the mad splash on susumu and then stalker hits the lamahi straw and taru pushes tetsunabe back into the position uh for the pinfall and you get your win a Shima-assisted Stalker Ichikawa victory. It is a beautiful thing to say. Yeah, as as we were saying about Shima in the year 2000, he just knew he knew what he was a lot more than anyone else was. Uh, yeah, no, it, it is something where Shima stealing Dragon Kid's mask becomes a re- or, or dra- Darkness Dragon's mask becomes a reoccurring thing. We will talk about this in our next match. We want to, we, we were going to highlight, but yeah. 
it is something where Okamura gets absolutely just destroyed by his former Buku Dojo uh, training mates. And at that point, the crowd is just the it is reaching a certain uh, tenor. I would say that even with them doing the dub and doing all the commentary and posts, you can tell that like this was a frantic scene, that this was a time that everything was just was happening. It was all happening. And all the while we did not mention this stalkers. Basically, if you remember the final gate 2020 red versus Torimon generation elimination loser must disbands match about how dragon kid was essentially towards the end. He was wrestling with his mask around his neck. Yeah, it was like a scarf, that basically. Was, yeah, as a scarf. That happened uh, 20 years before with uh, Stalker Chikawa in this match. And this is the biggest footage revelation I've had in a number of years with any old Trangate Torimon stuff, because I, I, I feel like I've really seen everything that matters. I, I had never seen this. I'm blown away by this match, and I really hope people listening take the time Drangate Network, it's on there. You'll you'll have the link in the description. And take some time with this match, man. It, this was this was really really special, and the crowd was so into it. And so Susumu and Kanda get their head shaves. And I have this note it, we, as we enter 2001. There's a lot of observer notes here that I'll kind of highlight as we go along because I think it's very interesting. But Dave says in the January 1st 2001 Observer. We've got an absolutely raving reports about the 1221 Torimon show at Corken Hall before an overflow crowd of more than 2,000 fans. This group draws a different fan base. About 40% of the crowd are women who are in the younger age demo that pro wrestling draws from culturally in Tokyo. Younger women have more disposable income. The negative with the high-flying style is the injury rate, which is classic Dave. But then he goes on to say, the main event was interesting because they did the Mexi- they did it Mexican style. It is a Lucha Libre promotion, and Dave says, realistically for work rate, the best of that style in the world with the air quote, or with the quote, stars in the semifinal, uh, six man, putting the gimmick match on last with the usual undercard guys to get the gimmick over using Taru and Stalker Ichikawa versus Susumu Mochizuki and Yasushi Kanda in a, in a loser gets their head shave match. He explains Stalker, uh, his gimmick, and then the fact that Stalker got the win. And this is the, the first sign I see of Dave being really, really complimentary towards Toriyaman. Yeah, at this time, uh, we've seen that the... I, I would say that the readership, I think, is a lot more complimentary about it than Dave was. The The, the biggest thing that uh, Dragon Gate or Toriyaman did at that time in the awards was the Dragon Rana winning uh, move of the year. But at this time, it was something where the stigma was still, was still overwhelming about Torimon. Like this is in the days and the age of where the stigma was developed. And you kind of see through that paragraph case, uh, really how it was perpetuated and how it kind of created a, a, a false uh, narrative that the company still tries to overcome 24 years. Later. The interesting thing, and again, I'm far from a Lucha expert, but my understanding is 2000 CMLL is pretty highly thought of. And Dave is saying that uh, among the Lucha companies, Drangit is doing it better than anybody. So I thought that was very interesting. I also thought it was interesting. Following paragraph, he says, Sumo Dandy Fuji 29 announced his final match would be on January 7th in Osaka ending a career that lasted less than four years. Don't know if this is an angle or if it's simply injuries from the tough style, but that would be a shame if it's real. 
Yeah, uh, he would rename himself Sumo Dandy 2000. Yes, this is, uh, at this year. point, Fuji was annually renaming himself, and that is all that this was. Yeah, so uh, let's go through the names of Don Fuji real quick. We have Big Fuji, we have Catcher Fuji, we have Don Fuji with one eye, Karaoke Machine one. I don't know why they attribute that to him. That's clearly not Don Fuji. Sumo Dandy Fuji, Sumo Dandy Fuji 2000, Sumo Fuji, Paro Fuji, Turbo Yon again. Why are they like attributing him with like these people that like are clearly <laughs> not on Fuji? Uh, his shoot name that he's actually wrestled under Tatsuki Fuji, as, as well as again, what is going on with these German Strong Machine F? Like, I I I know Kondo got unmasked as a Miss Strong Machine. But we can't just um, assume every stocky. Uh, Dragon Gate wrestler at one time was a member of the Strong Machine Army. Uh, so yeah, at this time, Dave uh, just bought into uh, Fuji's skin. I've said it before. I'll say it again. That's Trigger guy's no good. Doesn't know what he's talking yeah. about. Not like he has a podcast that I really enjoy. He's, he's you know, not, not a very smart guy. <laughs> so we move into 2001 here. Uh, we jump all the way to March. March 10th of 2001, Mochizuki was in Michinoku Pro. He beat Tiger Mask 4 for the Michinoku Pro British Commonwealth Junior Heavyweight Championship, and then he would take it back to Torimon and defend it against all the members of M2K in what he called the Masaki Mochizuki Strongest Legend Series. That would go throughout the next few months. But interestingly enough, after uh, the day after he wins the Michinoku Pro title on March 11th, El Numero Uno begins, the first El Numero Uno to determine the strongest singles wrestler in Toriyaman, Masaki Mochizuki announced at the start of the tournament that he would ruin El Numero Uno and that every M2K match would end in a double countout. That happened in his matches, but for Susumu Mochizuki, he would end up getting clean pins throughout the tournament, which angered the leader of M2K. Yeah, this was at a time where, again, 2001, Michinoku Pro, uh, this is one of like those last kind of times uh, Michinoku Pro kind of had that relevance until 2004, I would say, yeah. with, with this. Like, Dragon Gate takes the British Commonwealth title, basically, Torimon does, and uses it virtually up until the time they have the UDG title. So this is part of their assumption of that in a lot of ways. And then El Numero Uno at this point, like they had uh, the Young Dragon Cup, in Mexico and other Torimon kind of tournaments to decide uh, top students at this point, but you're looking at this you're, you're looking at this promotion now, 26 months and still really no singles belts, no sorts of things other than whenever the welter belt was through. The British Commonwealth now is here, but now it's time to determine the number one fighter, and we start with this one. And this is one of those like historical kind of apocryphal ones about. Uh, M2K and the double countout community uh, committee to the extent where Masaki Mochizuki coming in as this champion goes and uh, his block play, he is eliminated straight through case until they have the one thing that whenever anyone gets mad about Dragon Gate tournaments, we could point to the very first one and say, hey, we've been doing it from the start. Mochizuki makes the semifinals because he wins a battle royal. Yes, so this was a, one of those setups where they had three blocks. Uh, the winners from each block would advance to the semis, and then they did a loser revival battle royal. Mochizuki wins the battle royal, whereas Sua, Shima, and Magnum were the block winners. So 
Uh, Mochi advances to the semifinals. He beats Shima with a Saikyo high kick. And then in the finals, Mochizuki wrestled Magnum Tokyo. He promised a double countout, which he delivered on. But then Ultimo Dragon came out. So Ultimo, back in Japan, not in Mexico. Ultimo came out, demanded that the match be restarted. And then Mochizuki beat Magnum. Afterwards, saying the Toriumon system was useless, training in Mexico makes you weak, and that Masaki Mochizuki was the best wrestler in the company. He is so cool. <laughs> he really is. So Mochizuki at this point, he is establishing himself as the top dog. He is on the same level as Shima and Magnum, but you also start to see Susumu Mochizuki really making a name for himself and starting to come into his own. So I'm going to run through a few different dates here. Uh, from May through July at the Anniversario show, and we'll all kind of catch up after that. So May 12th, Cork and Hall, Ted Tanabe, the aforementioned referee, he comes out because he's a Michinoku pro ref. He says, hey, Masaki Mochizuki hasn't defended the title, the, the British Commonwealth title, in 30 days in Michinoku pro, so he should be stripped of the title. Ultimo Dragon comes out and says, actually, funny you say that, we need a title. Can we just have this one? And Ted Tanabe says, sure, <laughs> which feels abrupt and insane. But they make the main event of that night, which was uh, Mochi and Kanda versus Shima and Magnum. They made the winner of that match, whoever got the pinfall, the uh, Michinoku Pro British Junior Commonwealth Champion. So Mochizuki wins that match. And then the following, or I'm sorry, the following weeks, uh, this was May 27th, 2001. Susumu Mochizuki beats Arakan for the NWA World Welterweight Championship. So all of a sudden, you have two M2K guys with titles. That takes us to the June Corkin show, where Shima beats Magnum Tokyo in a number one contendership match for Mochizuki's British Commonwealth title. Keep this in mind. Shima beat Magnum. And then after the match, Mochizuki came out and said the Kobe World main event was Mochi versus Magnum. And Shima just got left in the dust. And so they end up doing a gimmick, which I, I am not a fan of, where if Magnum lost, he would have left Torimon forever. July 1st, 2000, Magnum Tokyo beats Masaki Mochizuki. He is your new Michinoku Pro British Commonwealth Junior Heavyweight Champion. I just love the fact that it's really like, we saw the year 2000 kind of become... And in a lot of ways, like Shima is entering his prime, but we now are at a point where two and a half years in, originally, as we talked about last month, Magum Tokyo was supposed to be this number one figure. And for all the reasons in the world, he was that for, I would say, through the fall of 1999. Then we had kind of the rise of Shima instead of it being a single ace company where with a heel backbone, you now have the heel more popular than the face. And we end this timeline or we end this portion of this now with the rise of Mochizuki. And we're starting to see now kind of a system that I don't think is very far off from what we now see nowadays. Like I would say that where it, it's still like the primitive dragon system, but the framework and especially the three sides have really come into play. And the idea that what is the biggest innovation that's happening here, it is the revitalization of the heel unit and allowing other heel units to change alignment. So now you have what we are 
kind of closing out the summer in in a three-way war between the three sides. I don't have particularly strong memories or fond memories of Magnum versus Mochia World, do you? No, no. Uh, it, it's one of those things that, like, Magnum, hit or miss. And for Mochi, that you, you know, his magic doesn't extend everywhere. <laughs> no. no, uh, no Magnum, no. and especially 2001 Magnum at this point. I, I, will, I will steal this directly from the old Jay Timeline podcast because he has the perspective on this that I can't have. But he made a note when talking about absolute or the uh, Anniversario show in 2001 that the American tape trader community was still really in favor of Crazy Max, and they were kind of the continued draw for every Torimon show. But on this show, it is Dragon Kid, Ricky Marvin, and Ryo Saito versus Darkness Dragon, Susumu, uh, Mochizuki, and Yasushi Kanda. And then later on, they have a, world, a UWA World Trios match with Fuji, Shima, and Sua versus Hamada, the Great Sasuke, and Tiger Mask. And the M2K six-man smokes that Crazy Max six-man. And in terms of our bubble this was the real turn towards paying more attention to M2K than Crazy Max, which I think is worth noting here. Yeah, yeah. And it is something where, I mean, correspondingly at this time, we are now several years with a lot of these people in that now this the newer wrestlers, at least in 1999, were Susumu and Kanda. And now two and a half years later, we are now seeing them putting off the best matches on the night in the biggest show of the year. So after that, we uh, head to the Observer here, July 16th, 2001. Dave writes, Darkness Dragon, Yasushi Kanda, and Susumu Mochizuki won the UWA trios titles from Shima, Suu, and Taru on the July 8th Torimon show at Differ Ariake. He says, Takashi Okamura is doing a gimmick where they pretend he's the president of Torimon. Funny in hindsight. So in the main event, Okamura and Magnum Tokyo wrestled Masaki Mochizuki and Chaco Flake Keiichi, where if Mochizuki's team won, he would take over as president, but Mochizuki ended up getting pinned. And then Dave highlights that on August 14th, 2001, they will run a three-way trios match for the UWA World Trios Championships. Oh, yeah. That's the fun thing about this timeline is it's not just about uh mochizuki contra mochizuki it's not just about m2k we're talking about the three-way six man <laughs> as well Well, let's do it so we get to august 14th 2001 this is a cork and hall show mm-hmm. according to notes this show began with most uh masaki mochizuki coming out and saying he was taking the night off because he's not in the uh uh I guess world welterweight title match and they do an angle where, and I use this in air quotes, the parents of M2K came out in Yokosuka jumpers and Masaki Mochizuki agreed to do the match only after the parents chastised him. Do you have any memory of this? Cause I've never seen this. Yeah, no, this did not make tape. Uh, or if it has not made tape, it's not made a version or a cut that I've seen. It was like very much like, I remember Jay talking about this and it's like, Oh, you had like a, an old man in the Mohawk, like Conda. You had uh, the uh, uh, Darkness Dragon character who never talked, and then Darkness Dragon's dad, and all of that. So it was very much kind of played a little bit for laughs in a way, but also the idea that you you look at this uh, this show here uh, at the very least. I don't know why he would have been in the welter match. Sumu was champion, 
Yeah, I, I I can't I can't figure out uh, that aspect of it because he obviously is in the the trios title match Mochizuki Masaki uh, Mochizuki is so uh, perhaps my error in getting lost in translation there. But nevertheless, we have Dragon Kid Magnum Tokyo and Ryo Saito still the Sekigun at this point versus Big Fuji Shima and Sua versus Darkness Dragon Masaki Mochizuki and Yasushi Kanda in one of the most famous matches in company history. Yeah, it is the the match that changes everything. And in a lot of ways, this is the the next one that changes everything. And it is something where, at least for me, you kind of get to see how a lot of things are kind of getting put together in a way that you get the little bit of a mini double dragon pop early on. You, you get like the little trademarks of teamwork that the two sides kind of go out there, but of course they don't. And then it it, it verges onto what it always kind of does in these kind of matches, which is a dragon kid ask dragon kid gets his ass kicked for however long until we have the really fun bit of, uh, I love like the, the uh, cradles that happen leading up to Shima's eliminate. Yes. No, this whole thing. I mean, if you compare this, Look at 18 months prior, the the January 2006 man that we start with. I mean, you can see that match. It's like, oh, they're you know they're young and fun and they're and they're very good. I mean, they're they're approaching world class status by that point. By August of 2001, they're these are the best wrestlers in the world. You know, I I, I mean, especially like you think about the Japanese scene at the time. You know, they're they're better than the Michinoku Pro guys that stayed. They're better than the Osaka Pro guys. I, you know, this is post glory years of New Japan juniors and a real dark ages for their heavyweight scene. It, you know, it's, it's what, this is Muto's year at All Japan where he's, you know, useful for a, a nice change of pace. Noah's 2001 is very odd. There's no Kobashi. There's no really yeah. memorable matches of Noah in 2001. It, 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 it's more the launching of Noah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, two, like 2000. Even though they, you know, they're running the schedule they do, there's a bunch of famous 2000 Noah matches. 2001, I, right. I mean, I'll look at that in just a second on Cage Match to see what's there, but I can't think of like the match from Noah in 2001, uh, which is just an odd thing. And then you look at the American wrestling, uh, American wrestling landscape, and you know, obviously, you know, it's Dragon and Spanky and Loki who are are maybe the best wrestlers other than you know Benoit and Eddie at this point, but they're they're not on this level you know this is this is really elite stuff i mean it's you know if you're looking at 2001 it's the torymont guys it's muto it's kurt angle I, I i don't know who else needs to be in that conversation you know maybe santo or casas but these are the best wrestlers in the world and this is a really really special match the the, the spot that always jumps out to me here there's two things that i always remember one when shima magnum and Mochizuki are in the ring at the same time. The cr mm -hmm. the crowd is so unbelievably loud, and it's like not a normal wrestling crowd sound. It, you know, you think it's the tenor. Yeah. Range. Well, you think about like I I always reference Kenta with this, but like the the Japanese female scream that you would just hear throughout watching Japanese wrestling over the years. Everybody can hear whether it's you know Kenta or Shima or you know whoever. You can hear that high pitched scream that is so often on these shows. It's like that. If all 1800 people in Corkin were doing it at the same time for all three of these guys. Yeah. And like you look at the lineups and other than, so Susumu defends the NWA world welterweight title in the semi-main event, uh, event against Ricky Marvin. This is a four match show. 
Uh, that match, uh, by the way, uh, it's wild to see Ricky Marvin very young, but uh, l- l- let's remember him a little bit further along his career. I- I'll say that, but you-, you essentially, though, when you take a look at the three sides, you have a a Sekigun team of Magnum Tokyo, Dragon Kid, and Rio Saito. Those are essentially one, two, and four, I would say, of the uh, babyface Sekigun army at that point. Maybe Saito maybe would have been down at five, but not much further. Uh, Crazy Max, you have Fuji, you have Suwa, you have Shima. That's one, two, and three. In the M3K, you have one, two, and four. Uh, if you want to put uh, Darkness Dragon out because Asuma's defending, you have essentially your nine biggest stars and from your three biggest units in this match. And it's the first time that this kind of thing was happening and having in such a way where you bring you bring the crowd up and then you have the Dragon Kid uh, self uh, so it leads into a stretch with Mochi, uh, Magnum, and Shima leading to Dragon uh, Darkness Dragon getting the big elimination of Shima after the months of Shima stealing his match and beating him up, and then leading to a now going to be uh, Sekigun versus uh, M2K concluding and breaking down to the point where M2K get lose, and Sekigun feels like they get their first ever win against M2K in this the other spot I want to highlight is the double John Woo on Dragon Kid and Darkness Dragon from Sua. That is uh, something that lives rent-free in my head to steal a term from the internet. The, uh, the, this uh, era Sua. Ugh. So Sua, Sua loses his hair in the hair versus mask match in 2000. Uh, has like one of the all-time great looks at this yes. point. Like, it, it is one of those things that like watching... And through like the timelines, Sua always looks like the coolest guy in Crazy Max. Like it, it's something where like Shima is the coolest, but when I'm like looking around, it's like which one do I want to be? I don't want to be Shima. I want to be Sua. Sua was meant to be bald. That is just it, it. Once he lost his hair, it felt like everything worked out better for him. Yeah, and then he like he had like the extensions way before Ginky too. Yes, it was a great look. Like he looked like Reno from uh natural born thriller <laughs> yes he did so uh, look there's not a ton else we can say on this match if you haven't seen it for some reason go watch it it's for me it's a four and a half star match it is up there with obviously i think august 30th 2003 the four-way version of this match i think that's the most right. famous match in Toriyama history i think it's it's probably darkest dragon versus dragon kid 2002 dragon kid versus shuji kondo 2004 just because of that gif and then this match are probably the most famous matches in Torimon history. So this is, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it by this point, go ahead and do that. After the match, Ultimo Dragon is out. He sets up the first cage match for the first ever Absolute Amente show in September. That cage match is Shima, Darkness Dragon, Dragon Kid, Masaki Mochizuki, and Magnum Tokyo. Uh, during the promo, Mochizuki notes to Shima uh, that, Mochizuki has Darkness Dragon, and Magnum Tokyo has Dragon Kid. Shima has nobody to help him. And in a bit of foreshadowing that basically told the story of the next 20 years of Dragon Gate Cage matches, Shima says, yes, he doesn't have a partner, but he also has no one to betray him. Which I really just illuminates the entire cage match psychology in this company perfectly. 
Yeah, yeah, and also Shima mindset. Like, really, I feel like if you learn one thing as we go through the year, I feel like Shimaism will be on full display, and you'll finally, everyone will be able to kind of figure out, like, what is Shimaism and what is Dragon's? <laughs> Very much so. So we go to the September 17th Wrestling Observer newsletter where Dave says that he saw the three-way dance from the 814 Torimon show. He says Budokan Hall. It was at Corken Hall. Uh, and Dave writes, which was said to be one of the best three-way dances in history. I've seen more dramatic three-ways from the WWF, but just for well-timed hot moves, including some I've never seen before, this was one hell of a match. Torimon combines the high flying of Lucha with a stronger basic style and a lot of in-ring comedy kept low on the card in its place and a lot of innovation and is one hell of an entertaining promotion to watch from top to bottom. It, it, it's always one of those things where, like, I think we, we kind of saw this when we were doing the DGUSA series case, where, like, we were trying to figure out really what Dave felt about Dragon Gate and what about Torimon and what we kind of came to the conclusion of was when Dave was actually watching and wasn't just, like, repeating people, he actually kind of ended up liking it uh, more than he did. And I feel like we see that kind of compare contrast, like, just from what he said about the uh, July shows versus what he said about the uh, three-way six. It makes me wonder just what his filter of information was at this time, because Torimon, if you go back and read 2001 Observers, it's mentioned pretty regularly, and Dave seems to be watching this footage a lot, and he seems to have a general idea of who everybody is. 2002, he's not doing that. I, there's a, a rewind and rewatch that we're going to do way later on in this year, but I was bored, and I was looking at old observers anyways, and I thought, oh, I wonder what Dave wrote about this. This was like a very infamous thing that happened. We'll obviously talk about it in specific detail later on this year. But I was just like, oh, well, I, you know, Dave probably had some interesting thoughts on this. It was a big story. No mention of it in any observers. And this is a Dragon Gate thing that happened in the mid-2000s. And it was just like, how, how was he so locked in and then so just completely unaware at different points in times? It's really interesting to me. Yeah, and then you have that at a time also where like there were other people on the website that would have definitely in the time and the day and age would have been completely up on Torimon. Like, like that's the thing I wanted to kind of discover is who he's talking to when. Yes. I mean, at this point, and I, 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 I would hate to falsely attribute this to anybody, but it's not an insult. I would assume given that it was 2001, I would assume John Muse was in his ear at this point because, you know, we're looking, yeah. we're looking at an alternate timeline where Muse is booking Torimon guys in WCW. So I would, I, I, yeah, would, that's I right. would think, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know for sure. But what I do know is September 30th, 2001. This is the Absolute Amente show also on the network. Ryo Saito defeats Susumu Mochizuki to win the NWA World Welterweight Championship. And then in the five-way steel cage match, Magnum Tokyo loses the match, loses his hair. He is very clearly taken down a peg by this. Shima has a really badly injured knee heading into this, which to your point, this is the last time Shima had a healthy knee was in 2001. He gets knee surgery after this match. And all of a sudden M2K back in the top spot. And they look really, really dominant, even with the Susumu Mochizuki loss on this show. So Shima was not the person credited for the Apuesta when it's actually Mochi here yes. because of he was the last one in the cage, but let the record say it again. 2K, uh, two hair matches. Shima's, 
walking <laughs> walking away with the full head of hair. That's exactly right. So uh, that is that is that. So Torimon hits an interesting point here. Again, Magnum clearly taken down a peg. You have Shima who misses about a month and a half of action because he's out with a knee injury. And then in October 2001, the the prevailing theory is that it happened on October 10th, but I don't know if anybody knows for sure. But Genki Horiguchi is wrestling against Yasushi Kanda. He gives him a beach break, and it caused a two-centimeter dislodgement in Kanda's spine, which sounds horrifying, and obviously that put Kanda out of action really until 2006. Right, so uh, it's something where it's similar but also different than uh, Takahiro Yamamura's injury. Like they're, Both of them are, are cervical injuries at their heart. One of them it repeated cervical concussions. The other one was this uh, dislocation, basically. Like one of his vertebra moved two centimeters. He virtually, like he does have a retirement ceremony in 2002, but it's not really anything where he's doing anything. And, and although he is ringside, you can tell very much so what Konda is able to do as he'll still remain a part of M2K basically up until Absolute Amente 2002. And all of that, he then becomes the heel referee. He he becomes a heel referee for M2K, becomes the legit referee, a matchmaking journal manager, kind of taking over the Ultimo and Okamura role, especially when Torimon becomes Dragon Gate in 2004, and then eventually in 2006 because of the Kenta uh, Tomayaka uh, heel referee storyline, uh, Yazushi Kanda makes his return. So October 2001 there, that's the demarcation point. We never get M2K at full strength after that. We move on to October 28th. This is in Differariake. The show opens up with a three-way match between Don Fuji, Genki Horiguchi, and Ryo Saito. M2K interferes. They clear the ring of Fuji, Saito, and Genki, but then they throw Genki back in the ring, and he picks up the win by countout. Dun-dun-dun. After the main event of this show, we have a promo battle and a challenge is set for the upcoming Cork and Hall show. The main event on this show, of course, was the UWA World Trios title match, Darkness Dragon, Masaki Mochizuki, and Susumu Mochizuki versus Dragon Kid, Magnum Tokyo, and Ryo Saito. Uh, the M2K team wins the titles here, and then a challenge is laid out where the Bicycle Brothers, Don Fuji and Ryo Saito, they challenge Masaki Mochizuki and Yasushi Kana to a match at Korkin. Mochi said yes, but Kanda's still hurt, obviously. So it was Mochi and X versus the Bicycle Brothers headed into that Cork and Hall show. Baseball fans, are you excited for the upcoming season? I know I am. It is time to gear up and show your team spirit with MLB Shop, the official online store of Major League Baseball. Find the latest jerseys, hats, apparel, and collectibles for all 30 MLB teams at MLB Shop. Represent your favorite players, your hometown team, or relive classic moments with exclusive throwback gear. Gear up for the season at MLB Shop. Whether you're cheering from the stands or watching at home, show your love for the game with official MLB merchandise. Make sure you use our exclusive link, voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB Shop, to help support the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Again, that's voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB shop. You'll pay the exact same price, the exact same items. Everything is exactly the same about your shopping experience, but a small percentage of every sale 
comes back to us. So again, it's voicesofwrestling.com slash MLB shop, the official online store of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and this is a time where a lot of things kind of are changing at this point. Uh, Don Fuji, uh, Bicycle Brothers. This is the original carnation of uh, Rio Saito and Don Fuji. It's all kind of based here. This is when Don Fuji's kleptomania kind of is established. Yes. A it- little bit more that there is him stealing Ginky surfboard and surfboard. That was a weird way of pronouncing it. It was kind of cool, though. Yeah, but uh, he was, is, you can say it like smorgasbord, and it comes <laughs> off like that. But uh, he did it does have the surfboard thing, but we do really identify the kleptomaniac uh, character with Bicycle Brothers, and that's when this is happening here. And you can kind of see, like, not only is it the situation where Sekigun just immediately puts the belts back onto, they go from Crazy Max to Sekigun to M2K, but you also have the fact that Shima, again, knee injury. Sua is doing Sua things wherever he might be. Taru never really was that entering figure. What does really Don Fuji kind of do at this point? He's kind of left his own devices, and we discover that he actually is one of the more... I I, I don't want to call him like a comedy wrestler. He just developed his comedy wrestler instincts. He's just like a funny wrestler. Yes. And we kind of get to see that aspect in this time period as crazy max. Like I, like you say, uh, you say at least uh, Magnum Tokyo takes a step back. Crazy max now clearly after losing the three way six man is no longer that unit that they were in 1999 and 2000. Yeah, so obviously, you know, the timeline we're following here, we're just focusing on M2K related things. If you're wondering, 2001 Toriyama, what else is happening? It's M2K versus Crazy Max, and it's this Don Fuji Rio Saito ongoing saga, which we're not going to recap here, but that is like the other big thing that happens throughout this promotion. So, like I said, that match gets set up for the November 8th, 2001 Cork and Hall show. Two big things happen here. One, Shima returns. He squashes Chocolate Flake Keiichi in under a minute, and lo and behold, the last match of Chocolate Flake Keiichi's career, which I did not realize until now. Yeah, now he is back doing uh, the World One uh, business. Yes, he worked for a and... company called World One, oddly enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the reference I was making last month. I, I did not realize we'd be talking about two months in a row about uh, Chocobol Kobe. But yeah, that's what Choco Flake Keiichi is up to. In my head, he was around much longer. I didn't think he made it to Dragon Gate, but I thought he made it to like late 2003. But no, he he got squashed here planned retirement Drangi knew or Toriyama knew this was coming but has yeah. never wrestled again and, and it's like something where I think it like we can use this him as a, a a good kind of thing to talk about other things that are happening like one thing that becomes like kind of clear is by 2001 all cap Saito is gone we do have super Shisa. we're kind of getting to a point where we're just about to get to uh the Toriman 2000 guys like the Toriman 2000 guys are appearing i believe in some of Amos amigos footage yes yeah, yeah very much so so just so everyone can kind of get a mindset of where everyone is on the uh racetrack of life right now so m2k they lose Kanda unexpectedly and chocolate flake keichi the bottom rung guy 
within the span of a month. So this unit goes from five to three, and they don't even have the original three. So in the main event, X turns out to be, it's Masaki Mochizuki and X versus Don Fuji and Ryo Saito. X is Genki Horiguchi. He has turned heel for the first time in his career. He comes out and uh, embraces and uh, links up with Masaki Mochizuki and what I thought was a really great main event. But the Bicycle Brothers go over, and uh, after the match, I will highlight this, because one, you should watch the match on the network, but what follows, for whatever reason, is not on the Dragon Gate network. Luckily, uh, my, my lovely friend Mike Spears had this file laying around somewhere on maybe a shared space that we have. <laughs> it's, weirdly enough, the only Infinity you have from 2001. It's the exact one, or uh, Vamanos Amigos from 2001. It's the one that I needed. I have hey <laughs> at, at least right here it, I I have it somewhere yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, to be clear um, yeah I cut out this post match angle because it is one of the most interesting things I have ever seen so Genki turns heel he's in M2K he loses they still beat down the Bicycle Brothers after the match Shima comes out he clears house and then all of a sudden the lights dim and Corkin. And Okamura and Ultimo Dragon come out, and Okamura makes this really somber announcement, or like this, you know, very somber tone. He passes the mic to Ultimo. It seems like Ultimo is about to retire, but before he can say anything, M2K comes back out. They attack Ultimo. Horiguchi gives Ultimo a beach break, and then Shima has to run them off again. And this is where they book Shima versus Moshi in a hair versus hair match. But I've cut out this post-match angle and put it on my YouTube. There'll be a link to it in the description. I don't know why it's not on the network because there's no music. There's nothing that would seemingly be flagged. You know, I can't imagine it's an Okamura thing. He's all over the other Torimon footage. I don't know why this isn't there. It is such a compelling angle because it's one of the rare times in Torimon where it kind of feels like they go too far. Like alt the, the beat down Ultima, the beach break, it gets heat, but it's not usual. It's why. Yes, it is. It is uncomfortable. Almost the noise or lack thereof that the building makes, but watching it from my perspective enthralling, what, just a phenomenal a plus Torimon angle. Yeah, and it is the company at the point. Like, again, it's the beach break. A month before, they did not know how bad Yazushi Kanda was off or was at or at that point. But, like, you're essentially, like, that happens. A lot of people don't really see it. And then you're immediately going and revisiting that a month later in front of this audience who we, we feel like we hammer this at a lot, but it's worth repeating here. Not conditioned for traditional wrestling angles. And not conditioned to see Ultimo ever looking weak. You know, think about think about yeah. how we started this. Ultimo comes in and beats the shit out of Susumu and Kanda. Right. Yeah. So it's this real, like, scary moment in the history of Torimon. And yeah, I wonder if it's something where it's like the Ultimo thing or it's Shima making the save or if it's just one of those things that the... The master that they still had that they transferred just did not have those minutes. Yeah, it's very odd, but that'll that'll be up on uh, on my YouTube. I'll put a link in the episode description. Mike, in our notes here, I'm going to skip this Observer paragraph. Dave writes in the November 19th, 2001 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. He recaps everything I just said, but 
almost all of the names are wrong. He gets the matchups wrong. It's very confusing. It's not anything I hold against Dave, but it is uh, historically inaccurate, which takes us to December 10th, 2001. The, uh, the Torimon show to close the year, La Ultima Keda and Shima versus Masaki Mochizuki, hair versus hair lumberjack match. You knew what you did when you set up this timeline. Yeah. You knew I'm, I'm, what we did. I'm pretty good at this, baby. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is Ultima Kaeda at the stadium that was built for the 60s uh, Tokyo Olympics. If you wonder why no one runs this venue anymore, it's 60 years old. I don't know how it still is up I, in Tokyo. I'm glad you said that. I was wondering that because I really like the look right. of this venue. I mean, it... If there is a question about a wrestling venue in Japan case, I'm willing to try to figure it out. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, this whole show, we just talked about this because I, I this match really jumped out to me when I did my Mochizuki article. The whole show was great. Dragon Kid and Super Shisa versus Darkness Dragon, Susumu Mochizuki. It opens the show. That is worth watching. That match is a ton of fun. The Magnum Tokyo versus Ricky Marvin match, not so much. I would I would skip 13 minutes of that and move on with your life. And instead, get to Shima versus Mochi, the hair versus hair lumberjack match, which, when I think about it, is probably my favorite Torimon singles match ever. Yeah, so this kind of has your uh, position that uh, Darkness Dragon versus DK was. I didn't know that before. I think so. It's just the match is 15 minutes. You could make the argument, you know, Shima and Mochi, they have this match here in 2001. They obviously wrestle for the Dreamgate at Final Gate 2011, so 10 years later. The Dreamgate match is probably better. I don't know. I used to not like that Dreamgate match. Last time I watched it, I really liked it. But there is just something. It is so beautifully chaotic. I mean, this match is nuts. There's run-ins. The, the yes. interference is tremendous. The run-ins. The interference, the way the interference plays into the finish, it is genuine chaos. I, you you really you start to see about seven minutes in, Mochizuki and Okamura go at it. Mochizuki just bails after that point. He is sick of the match. He's going to get the double count out. He doesn't want to deal with Shima. He doesn't want to deal with Okamura. Ultimo Dragon is wearing a sleeveless, like, Under Armour style t-shirt looking enormous. This is the biggest Ultimo. Looking well. The biggest Ultimo ever looked. He runs down Mochi. He brings him back into the ring, or tries to bring him back into the ring. Mochizuki, at that point, Irish whips him into the steel post, goes to land a high kick. Ultimo ducks. Mochi high kicks the post. Then he goes back into the ring. There's a great spot here. You think about Shima and the Venus punch. We've seen him do it a thousand times. He goes to do the Venus punch. Mochizuki high kicks him out of the air in a way that I have just never seen anybody counter that move it, before or since. It is. And then Shima, if if I'm thinking about the right cell that you are referring to, one of the all-time great out-on-his-feet cell jobs He's, off of she, this, she, this To me, this is a mochi match, but Shima is, I, you know, it's it's 2001 Shima. I'm not going to repeat myself, but this is, yeah. you know, when I, when I revisited this in January, it, this was the match that really made me go, even though you and I and a few other very educated people think Mochizuki at worst is maybe one of the 10 best wrestlers ever. This is the match that really made me go, huh? Are we underrating him 
when we have him at four or five or six all time, because this is an attitude era car crash style of match that Mochizuki just dominates. And he is brilliant in this match. He has a, a psycho high kick right towards the end where it looks like Shima is dead. I mean, I can't believe how hard Shima got kicked, but he recovers, hits the swine, one, two, three, four and a half stars. Masaki Mochizuki loses his hair. I love this match so much. Yeah, and, and it's something where they play with the Lumberjacks in a really smart kind of way. And it starts off almost immediately with a incident where Mochi's trying to bail to the outside, but he's on the Crazy Max and Seki Gun side. Seki Gun kind of is with Crazy Max as Lumberjacks, but they're not. it's not clear-cut. I mean, it's not like uh, Suwa's ever going to be happy to be on the same side as Dragon Kid. So, But the, what happens is that they basically prevent Masaki Mochizuki to clear the ring. He gets stuck up in the apron, and Shima does his baseball side kick and just craters him. And then from there, I think, and it is something where we're, we are really talking about different generations and different eras, I think this is the first uh, absolute clusterfuck classic interference match that Dragon Gate has. This is well, the it's, one it's where... It's either this or the match from the prior December, the tag match with Stalker, but this this even feels like it's ramped up a level. Right. This is something because you have the uh, running corner spot where it goes Crazy Max and then it goes into... You no, know, it starts off a Seki Gun running in, helping out Crazy Max, and Crazy Max gets in, but when Shima goes for the attack, he misses it. Like a, You have the full uh, corner attack train. Ultimo, you, you did not mention that Ultimo is not just like clearing the ring in an aggressive fashion. He's clearing it like to such an extent that he emphatically grabs a steel chair and sits in the corner <laughs> for the remainder of it. It is something where like I wonder if it's something nowadays or in 2019 case when Ultimo came back and we all collectively like looked around and said, well, it's nice that there's at least going to be some finality and some people are getting to say what they've probably wanted to say for 15 years about this. But I wonder what the response is going to be. I wonder how like the crowd's going to be. And I wonder how Ultimo is perceiving what his response is going to be. Because at least the fans around 2001, whenever Ultimo comes in and is like making the save and, and you know, dad's putting the kids in the place, the crowd's all about Massive that. deal every time. It, it, and it's something where like that was not the case 18 years later. No. It was a lot more polite applause and i wonder if ultimate in the back of his mind was always thinking like they're going to remember me as like the cool dad <laughs> that came in because that's very much what ultimo was in 1999 through 2001 really uh, uh, up until his return in absolute mente 2002 that was the sheen that ultimo had in this audience so after the match Moshi gets his head shaved. He throws down his M2K jacket. He cancels his appearances for the rest of the year. So this is the last time we see Masaki Mochizuki in 2001. Dave writes in The Observer on December 10th, uh, December 10th 2001. He said, Torimon's big show at uh, in Tokyo at the Komazawa Olympic Park Gym has not only Shima versus Mochi in a hair versus hair lumberjack match, but also Magnum Tokyo versus Ricky Marvin and Ryo Saito versus Genki Horiguchi. He says, Torimon has over the past year gotten really popular with younger audiences, particularly teenage girls who came to see Shima and Magnum. It also, and this is why I'm so fascinated with The Observer in 2001, Dave says, it also 
from a pure entertainment in-ring standpoint, may be the best men's promotion in the world top to bottom right now. I mean, December 2001, and I know we have our biases and we put them on display every episode. It's never hiding anything. I don't think Dave is wrong. No, I I mean, God, no. 2001 Torimon is is maybe the, best, the best top to bottom year of the promotion. Right, yeah. Uh, so that is... That is the end of that. Dave also notes on the December 17th Observer that Ultimo Dragon uh, was going in for another operation to regain feeling in his hand. I will skip over, Mike, the other note that's there and move on to 2002, just because I'm running a little bit low on time here. We move on to 2002, January 8th, Cork and Hall show. Mochizuki returns at the beginning of the show. He has no spiked hair, no goatee, no Yokosuka jumper. He says he's no longer a heel. He pulls a Daiki Yanagiuchi and brings a broom to clean up garbage on his way to the ring. He announces that M2K will still exist, but will pivot to the full conclusion committee, meaning they will have hot fighting and clean finishes. This brings out the rest of M2K. And the angle that I love here is Genki Horiguchi is pissed. He's like, what the hell, man? I just turned heel. This is fun. Who are you to get in my way? And all of a sudden, we have a lot of tension with M2K and their leader. Yeah, I mean, Ginky did at that point the most devastating thing in Torimon history. <laughs> and now Masaki Mochizuki is saying, no, we're not doing that anymore. Come on, man. Yeah. Uh, so that leads to the main event, UWA Trio's title match. M2K came in as the champions, Darkness Dragon, Masaki Mochizuki, and Susumu Mochizuki. They lose to Fuji, Shima, and Taru. This match is built around Mochizuki trying to stop cheating. He's bringing guys back into the ring. He's stopping blue box attacks. And as a result, he is the one that gets pinned. He gets pinned by the Taro Driller. So they lose their titles here. We go to January 24th in Osaka. Sua squashes Mochizuki in the opener. That gave Sua the opportunity. They had been doing this weird. Sua was in the opening matches. He wanted a match versus Okamura. Sua beat Mochi. He got his match versus Okamura at the February Cork and Hall show. They do a rematch of Sua versus Mochi on the February 3rd Hakata Star Lane show. Mochi loses again, and he gets kicked out of M2K on that show. There's a weird history note here. The roster was so banged up that Mochi still teamed with M2K for a few shows here and there just to fill out the cards. But February 3rd, 2002, that is when Mochi gets kicked out of M2K. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember, like, the whole entire, like, Sua logic. Like, there was a reason why Sua was an opener. Yeah, so and, like, it goes back to Absolute Amente, which was September. I think I'm I'm right, right on this timeline. Let me, let me pull that card back up real quick, because what happens is uh, Sua, and I don't know, just given the way that he ended his Dragon Gate career— I don't know how much of this was a shoot and how much of it wasn't. Maybe this actually goes back further. At some point in 2001, Sua leaves the promotion for a little bit. He takes a hiatus from the promotion. And when he comes back, he's relegated to only working opening matches. And it's not until he beats Okamura on the February 24th Cork and Hall show that he can go back to main events. Yeah. And that February 4th uh, Cork and Hall show, he pretty much just dismantles Okamura. Yes, so let's talk about that. That brings us to Mochizuki contra Mochizuki. I watched this entire show, Mike. Did you? Yes, I did. Okay, all right. Well, luckily, 
not a ton to talk about uh, because we don't get one of the matches on this five-match Cork and Hall show, and the rest of it was not very good. But yes, Sua dominates Okamura in the opener, to your point. Yeah, and it's something where I... Sua is always one of those, like, captivating people whenever I see him. And Okamura, at this point, like, Okamura will wrestle, like, off and on. Like, I mean, he was appearing in Dragon Gate stuff, like, up until 2018. But really, by and large, like, from this point, he does essentially one match in 2003, one match in 2004. He does do a bunch of stuff in 2005 and 2006, but that's really it for him. After we have a stalker comedy match, it's him versus uh Mitsuhiro Matsunaga. Uh, that was fine, or uh, who was it? Yeah, M- M- uh, Mitsuhiro Matsunaga. Uh, that was fine. We get Magnum Tokyo and Super Shisa versus Darkness Dragon and Genki Horiguchi. The match itself, I did not think was very good, but there is a post match segment with Magnum Tokyo and Sua. And Mike, do you know what that post match promo segment led to? Oh, is this? Uh, are we getting close to Kawasaki? It mode? led to Kawasaki mode. So yes. we've told the story on the yes. podcast before. I'll make it real quick here. So there's an angle set up here where Magnum is going to defend the Michinoku Pro British Commonwealth Junior Heavyweight Title against Sua. They do that match March 15th in Kawasaki Kanagawa, Japan, Kawasa- uh, Kawasaki City Gymnasium. This show makes TV. I think the only thing that made TV was the title match. It is five minutes. Sua goes over on Magnum. They call it Kawasaki mode because Sua in Kawasaki just wrestled like a madman. Five-minute title match. They killed the town. They wrestled in Kawasaki once more in Torimon. It's never been a big Dragon Gate town. This is the end of this market. And if you go to the official Gaiora website where they have all of the Dragon Gate results, all of the Torimon results going back to day one in Mexico, March 15th, 2002, they do not have a listing for. They pretend this show does not exist. It is not in the Torimon archive. There is no record of it other than obviously what Cage Match has, the fact that Sewell won the world title on this show, and the fact that the, the main event makes TV. But they they did what's, uh, what they did on SmackDown with The Rock and Cody a month ago. They just pretend this show never happened. Yeah, and it's something where you look at the remainder of the show and like no wonder like they they could not come back with this because outside of this you have an opener kid and Shisa, uh Arakan and and Rio Saito that's fine 10 minutes but then you have a great ruta versus soccer masahiro match so taru doing a onita gimmick soccer doing a chono gimmick and then masaki mochizuki knocks out raimund mishma 1 minute 16 seconds that's basically what the show was so not only did they just go out there and have a match so bad that it's basically the existence of it has been an excise, but you have basically a crazy match in M2K, uh, crazy max and M2K match as the only other thing on the show. It's funny because you don't see a lot of Torimon shows with empty seats. You know, you think about like the traditional Japanese gymnasium that they run, there are seats on the floor and depending on how the business is doing, you have that upper deck of seats built into the arena, and those are either filled or vacant, just depending on, again, how hot a promotion is. This is one of the only Torimon shows. If you watch that match, the floor seats are barren. It's very odd. It, it is just that nothing about this got over. Historically very bad. Unlike our main event, 
Mochizuki contra Mochizuki. I believe this match was set up at that Hakata Star Lane show. And, uh, you know, Susumu Mochizuki, Masaki Mochizuki, they decided the promotion could only have one Mochizuki. The loser would be renamed to their hometown. So had Mochizuki lost, it would have been Masaki Koto going forward. Of course, we know Susumu Mochizuki lost. And thus we had a glorious, you know, two decades of Jimmy Susumu, but more importantly, Susumu Yokosuka, as we now know him. Yeah, this is, I think, if anything, we, we talk a lot about Masaki Mochizuki and his greatness. I feel like this match is actually a Susumu. Yes, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, one of Susumu, at, at this time, the best match of his career, looking back, probably top uh, 10 still when you like look at a guy's career and you're talking about a match that he was having less than two years into his career, I I mean, it's it, it it's the best singles match I feel like in uh, Torimon history. Really, you're, in, you're in that Torimon high era. on it. I think it's excellent. I think that the knee work in it is really good. the The basis of the corner kicks being just like completely taking uh, Mochi uh, Masaki out of it, and the build up to the uh, the Shinsaikyo high kick into her Karan in the finish. I thought it was just 15 minutes of just like really smart and incredible heated oppressive match. It is, it is really, really well worked. It, like you said, it's a Susumu match. Just the, the way he attacked the limbs, there's an ankle lock towards the end of the match where it's just like, God damn, this guy is, this guy is so good. This really is. I mean, there's a Ricky Marvin match in 2001 that people, you know, kind of in the, the pantheon of Susumu, it's the September 14th, 1999 match against Horiguchi, which are second term students where they're like, oh, Ultimo actually has more good kids. Holy cow. And then there's the 2001 Ricky Marvin match. And then there's this. And from there, you're off to the races with him being, you know, one of the great wrestlers of all time. Uh, it is it is a great storytelling match with Mochi fighting off the M2K interference. It's a great storytelling match for the way that Susumu attacks Mochizuki. And honestly, it's a great storytelling match because Masaki Mochizuki comes out on top and you feel really, really good for him by the end of the match. Yeah, this is kind of the match where he was a member um, nominally of Seki Gun, like being not a member of M2K, not a member of Crazy Max, not being one of those T2P kids. But he, after this one, feels like the head of the face army. And it is something where we kind of, from there, a lot of stuff sets up for 20, from 2002 just in the post-match alone and everything and how everything's built up there. I guess, like, for me, like, when I'm, like, looking, and I, and I guess you really kind of compare this to what would be the match in 1999, the uh, NWA Welter match. I, I, it's it's not even that. It's a Cork and Hall opener. It's that September Cork and show where they go out, they get, like, 15 yeah. minutes, and they just crush it. Right. So... I think you like we really look at this match, at least the way that I tend to. And I, yeah, when we talk about like Apuestas matches, really the hair matches are the ones that kind of are the ones that like stand out. And Shima, by the way, three and zero in That's hair right. matches on this. That's right on this program this week. Just keep it, but, keep it a note. Uh, keep it a note there. But I feel like when I'm when I'm thinking about. Outside of Darkness Dragon and Dragon Kid, because I put that one in its own special place. 
this to me feels like the most relevant kind of uh, Apuestas match in the Torimon era. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we're still living off the ramifications of it now. I, I think it's a match. It's funny you like it as much as you do, because I've always looked at it as being uh, more famous than it is great, even though it's a four-star match, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, this is, you know, if you're going to tell the story of Torimon, which we're trying to do here, you you have to talk about this match. It's just, it's become that important over the last 22 years, you know, ever since it happened. And it's something where, like, when we're, like, talking about other apuestas at this time, like, I feel like the first cage match happening in 2001 is kind of like an afterthought in a lot of yes. ways. But but we remember uh, Sua versus Dragon Kid. We remember uh, Mochi versus Shima. And we remember Mochizuki contra Mochizuki, probably, with the exception of Dragon versus Dragon. Like, this is it for that. And... I think that when they went back, at least uh, during the Yokosuka, Chome, and uh, Mad Blanky era, it's all cribbing off of what happened back in 2002, 10 years before that. And there's a reason why almost 10 years after that, he goes back to Samumo Chizuki. It kind of works out that way. I think that's very well put, Mike. That is rewind and rewatch Mochizuki contra Mochizuki. I uh, I have nothing else to add. I think that's two years of Torimon history summed up quite nicely. Absolutely. And uh, that would do it, I believe, this week for Open the Voice Gate. Thanks for everyone for uh, giving uh, all, the, all the feedback we've had so far for the Dragon Gate 25 project, and especially on the program for the Rewind and Rewatch series. We'll be back with it in March again. Next week on the program case, we are staring down the first big weekend of the year. It's the doubleheader in Edeon Arena to Osaka, Nostalgia Gate and Champion Gate. We'll be talking about that as well as they make an appearance at the Kobe Art Center. So we'll be previewing and looking at Kobe next week. But that's going to do it here on Open the Voice Gate. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. Cases at underscore in your case. I'm at Fujiheya. Thanks for listening to Open Voice Gate. We'll be back with you next week. Take care. Hi, I'm Case Lowe, co-host of the Open the Voice Gate podcast. The one question I'm constantly asked when it comes to Dragon Gate is how do I get into the promotion? Well, stop asking and start listening to the Open the Voice Gate podcast released every Wednesday on the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. For exclusive news and show reviews, look no further than the leader in Dragon Gate coverage, Open the Voice Gate.